0: Welcome back to a brand new episode of the Silmarillion Film Project. I'm your co-host Dave Kale, and we have an exciting but also bittersweet episode today because we are not joined today by the Tolkien maven Trish Lambert. She has other engagements, um, but fortunately the Tolkien professor Cory Olson is with us as always, and we are joined by some special guests. We're going to help us discuss the script outlines that they have produced for us, so we're plowing ahead. We're we're this thing's happening. We're writing script outlines. We're writing scripts. We're developing the story, um, and now it is our chance as the um, you know uh, studio, the faceless studio suits, to um, criticize everything they did and network note them to death.
1: That's right. That's right. We've been really looking forward to uh, putting other people on the hot seat and criticizing all the stuff that they've done. Uh, So this will be exciting. And, of course, I I, I really love this chance to go back and review uh, the season as well to kind of uh, look at the bigger picture, of course, as we've been going through episode by episode. You know, it's easy to kind of, you know, you're, you're kind of way down close to the ground, and it's really neat to kind of back up and, and, and sort of review the bigger picture by, by, by looking at all the outlines. We'll be looking at the outlines. The goal, I should say, for today is to look through the outlines of Episodes 1 through 7, uh, so uh, just over the first uh, half of... Of the season, um, and this is all. Which means the- we'll probably get through episodes one through two. <laughs> yeah, now I think we can do it. I think we can do it. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Um, but anyway, so it, it is a really neat chance to go back and review. I, you know, looking over the outlines, I was like, "Hey, uh, um, I barely remember this stuff." So that was fun uh, to go back and and uh, and sort of be reminded of the overall shape of uh, of season two. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, two quick announcements that I wanted to uh, to make sure to note for people. Um, one is uh, a, a big upcoming event that's happening starting next week, starting Monday, February 6th at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Is the first of two special sessions that Verlin Flieger is doing. She's uh, hosting Ooh. another uh, 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 session of our... Uh, uh, our seminar series, um, and this is going to be a really really neat one um, and she 's going to be talking about two different tolkien volumes that she 's published, which has just come out in the last couple of years um, and uh, uh, the uh, the seminar this uh, this seminar is going to be called Tolkien in the Dark uh, Verlin is going to be talking about the uh, the sort of the early and much darker than Uh, than people are accustomed to thinking about Tolkien's works uh, of his earlier life. In particular, she's going to be talking about Kulervo, the story of Kulervo, uh, which, as many of you may know, is kind of like the the proto-Turin Turambar. This is when Tolkien was still doing Kalevala fanfic, before he fully adapted it into his own mythology and kind of took the ideas, you know, a lot of the ideas from the Kulervo story and really kind of gave them a home with Tur- Turin Turambar. This is when he was just like, hey, I want to do my own version of uh, of uh, the Kalevala story. Uh, and so he rewrote the story of Kulervo. Uh, and and this is something, so the story of Kulervo is is, the, is literally, the I believe, the earliest writing we have from Tolkien. I mean, it was like the first creative work uh, that has survived. Um, so, nice. really, really early Tolkien, um, and uh, and the other is the very recently published uh, *Lea veo tru in etruun*, um, which is this, uh, which is, I would guess, I mean, of course, at least, you know, until now, but until it's published, one of the least read Tolkien works of all. I mean I, I think there I, I don't think there are any Tolkien works that are read less often than that with the possible exception of Finn and Hengist because it's you know that's sort of for the anglo-saxon diehards but uh, but anyway it's uh, really cool so um, so let's. Uh, uh, t- just sort of keep in mind that date, Monday, February 6th, and then the week after she'll be doing the second one. So I, I believe she'll be talking about Coolervo this coming Monday. So I just wanted you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, everyone's invited uh, and I hope you'll be able to make it Monday, February 6th, 5.30 p.m. Of course, it will be recorded and posted afterwards if you miss it. Um, but, of course, if you come live, then you have the opportunity to, uh, you know, ask questions of Dr. Flieger and, and be involved in the conversation more directly. So just wanted to make sure people knew that that was, uh, that that was coming out. Um, the other thing, it's not exactly an announcement, more of a reflection exactly, but this has been an incredible week. I just I wanted to kind of talk for a second about how awesome this week has been. Um, the two sessions that I broadcast earlier this week were both of them, like, monumental. It kind of it seems a little bit melodramatic to say that they were life-changing, but honestly, it was, like, close to that. Um, the two sessions I did back-to-back on Tuesday night and Wednesday night are, like... Absolutely red letter occasions. Uh, on Tuesday night, I was doing my Exploring the Lord of the Rings class, the one that I host in The Lord of the Rings Online on twitch.tv. And um, I was addressing the passage from which springs one of the most persistent questions I've ever gotten about the Lord of the Rings. So it's like a major thing that I... that I, But it's not just something that everybody always asks about. It's also a question that I've always been crappy about answering. Um, so it was a huge, huge deal for me because I basically kind of feel like I finally figured out what's really happening there in, in much, much more clearly than... I mean, I... I sort of emerged from that with more of a like, wow, I finally understand what's really happening here kind of thing. And it was a, such a critical moment. And the, the, the moment in question is Gandalf's conversation with Frodo in Chapter 2 of The Fellowship of the Ring. And the question that is always asked of me is like, what the heck is up with Gandalf? Why is he so slow in the uptake? Um, shouldn't he have kind of glommed on to the fact that this was the the ring of power earlier and why did it take him 77 years to sort this out and what the heck has he been doing with himself um, a lot of people talk about this like this is just an obvious like sort of error like kind of gap in Tolkien's story that it just kind of doesn't make sense that Gandalf hasn't figured this out sooner and doesn't do anything about it sooner so uh, and and it, it, it's a good question, and it's an interesting question. And as I said, I have never thought that I've given a good answer to that question. I've answered it dozens of times, but usually crappily. So I was super excited going through. So that session was really, really fun. going through. You know, we went through that whole section pretty much paragraph by paragraph, You know, tracing the, uh, the line of Gandalf's reasoning and looking at... Uh, like, for instance, I had never really noticed how evasive Gandalf is. And I finally saw why. I finally figured out why. Like, what's bothering Gandalf? Why is he being as, as elusive uh, as he is? What you know, Frodo has to ask his question twice and really screw him to the point before he can get Gandalf to answer the question, which is, how long have you known all this, Gandalf? Um And Because, of course, it turns out, as Gandalf eventually explains, uh, and, of course, the all this that Frodo is asking about is uh, the thing that Gandalf leads the conversation with, which is, yeah, that ring that you have, turns out it's destroying you and going to eat your soul, right? And Frodo's response to that is, huh, so uh, how long have you known about this, Gandalf? And Gandalf doesn't answer it. And then when he does, he hems and haws about answering it because the answer to the question is... Well, I've known it pretty much for sure for the last 17 years. Uh, I've been pretty suspicious of it for about 77 years. And uh, let me explain why I never mentioned it to you. And I've been allowing you to possess this thing, which I've known to be probably eating away at your soul for the last two decades without me even telling you about that fact. Gandalf is, is... is feeling distinctly awkward about that. Gandalf seems to feel guilty. Um, anyway, just the whole scene was really, really cool, and it was it was really fun. So I uh, if you've ever wondered about this scene, if you've ever had that question that I'm talking about, I strongly recommend. Um, uh, we had a great discussion about that on Tuesday night. Um, so that was episode f- uh, five, episode five of the Exploring the Lord of the Rings class. But then... That class was awesome, but it was totally overshadowed by Wednesday night. In Wednesday night's Mythgard Academy class, in The Return of the Shadow, we were looking at... Uh, uh, so we're here we are, going through The Return of the Shadow, and the big... We came to what I am convinced uh, is the most important paragraph, the most important sentence that Tolkien ever wrote. Um it was, it's, it's, it's incredible. It's just like the way that this emerged and, and, and what we... It was That was like possibly the most exhilarating class I've taught in like five years. It was incredible. And um, the thing is, we what, what we've been looking for in the Mythgard Academy series, we've been going through the History of Middle-earth series and one of the big questions that I can... We've come to the History of the Lord of the Rings, so we're doing the Return of the Shadow. And one of the big questions was... I've argued many times before that when Tolkien wrote The Hobbit, of course there are all those apparent Silmarillion references, all those kind of pseudo Silmarillion references. And, uh, but I've argued many times, those aren't really Silmarillion references. That's Tolkien recycling ideas from the Silmarillion, but he's not really setting The Hobbit in the Silmarillion world. There, there's, there's still sort of an imaginative firewall up between the two things. And when he starts *The Lord of the Rings* as a sequel to *The Hobbit*, it's still there, and I think you can see it. And I've argued as we've gone through the, *The Return of the Shadow*, whenever we have gotten to occasional references, reuse of names and concepts and things like that from the Silmarillion mythology, that he's still doing the same thing. He's still recycling. Just in in uh, in the chapter, for instance, in which uh, uh, the hobbits are are traveling from Bree to Weathertop, there's a reference to Gilgalad. And the Last Alliance, and there too, I, you know, by I, I, argument is that he's still recycling. This is, hes its the same way as like the use of the names of Gondolin and Elrond uh, in The Hobbit. It's not—he's re- not really joined those two worlds perfectly yet. And I think there's evidence that 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 shows that that's the case. So what I've been waiting for, of course, we all know, eventually, The Lord of the Rings. The, during the process of the writing of The Lord of the Rings, is where the two worlds really come together. Where the world of the Hobbit really meets the world of the Silmarillion, and it becomes one big, really incredible thing, um, and that's the thing which is going to be the 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 turning point for Tolkien. Like that, that's where the magic happens, right? When the great mythology he's been working on comes joint becomes joined to, you know, the fantasy that he's actually writing and publishing. Uh, you know, and the result is the magical thing that has drawn us all in and made us fans for life. Um, but when does it happen and how does it happen when does the firewall come down Uh, and we got there it came on Wednesday night we came to the passage where it happens uh, and it was so so exciting to see Um, the uh, um, the answer by the way um, is uh, uh, the Baron and Luthien Story like the the the, the moment, um, the moment that it happens is when tr- of course uh, the guide that is leading the the ho- the the hobbits from Bree to Rivendell is not yet Strider the man of course it's Trotter uh, the 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 hobbit, um, but um, when Trotter uh, um, when Trotter says that he will tell them the story of Baron and Luthien. That's when it happens. That is the moment. Um, so so this, the, the, this, the, the sentence I was referring to, um, you know, what I think is the most important sentence Tolkien ever wrote, the, the, the thing which changed Tolkien's entire life, uh, and, a, and a bunch of ours as well, is, but I will tell you the tale of Tenuvio in, in brief, for in full it is a long tale of which the end is not known, and there is no one that remembers it in full as it was told of old, unless it be Elrond. That's it. That's it. That's it. From then on, the two are joined. And he goes on to include the poem of course, his revision of Light as Leaf on Linden Tree and we spent like the whole second half of the class on Wednesday night looking at the poem and how he changed the poem from the earlier version of that poem in the ways of Beleriand and you can see how he is embodying the mythology in the poem now in a much more direct way than he was even back when it was included in the Children of Huren. and anyway, it was just, it was awesome like it was uh, just incredible, so I, I, even if you're not even if you're not following the Mythgard Academy series and reading The Return of the Shadow with us you know Wednesday's class it was uh, session number seven on The Return of the Shadow both of those uh, uh, episodes should be posted to their various podcast feeds and stuff like that uh, so i I, I. Again, I just sort of wanted to share, and I know I've gone on for a long time about this because, but just like, dang, this was such an important those two nights back to back of like feeling like I finally have like understood a passage of the Lord of the Rings that I never under that has always kind of troubled me, uh, and then immediately the next day finding like making what. You know, sort of felt like a discovery, and I don't mean no one's ever noticed it before or anything, but. But for me, it was a discovery, and that was just so much fun. It was just just incredible. So, um, so yeah, so, uh, David, where you can find that? uh, The Mythgard Academy is the name of the series. Um, The easy place to look for both of these two things is on our YouTube channel. The video recordings um, of both the Mythgard Academy and the Exploring the Lord of the Rings series uh, are on our YouTube channel. So just go to YouTube and search for Signum University. Uh, and you'll find it there. Um, there's a there are separate playlists for each of the Mythgard Academy classes. So just again, you just look for the Return to the Shadow playlist, and you'll find it there. And there's also a playlist for Exploring the World of the Rings. So
0: also, if you you should you should just be subscribed to the Tolkien Professor feed on iTunes, so that you get everything.
1: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and that way you'll get the audio from Exploring the World of the Rings. That 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 will come through the. Um, the Tolkien Professor podcast feed as well. Now, the Mythgard Academy one is actually a different feed. There's a there's a separate feed for the Mythgard Academy, but you can subscribe to that on iTunes as well. Um, we, we made a different feed for that because it's not all Tolkien. It's only about half Tolkien. We do every other book we do is a non-Tolkien book. <laughs> okay. Well, technically, the rule is we can't do any book by any. Uh, one author twice in a row. Like we, we we can't do two books in a row by the same author, but in practice with our demographic, what that means is you can't do two Tolkien books in a row. You can only do every other book a Tolkien book, uh, uh, which is which yeah, is pretty much what we've what, been
0: doing. But that is what happens. <laughs> it,
1: exactly in practice, that's what it's kind of turned out to be. But um, but anyway, yeah, it's been uh, it's been it's been really neat. So okay, uh so I just, I know it seems weird to do like an announcement where I'm like, uh, you know, advocating for classes that I recorded earlier in this week, but I just wanted to share how, you know, revolutionary for me. I feel like I am emerging from this week with my whole perspective changed. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, just very moved. So just wanted to share that. Um, uh, good. So let's get to the outlines. Um, A quick note before we begin, in case I forget at the end, thank you, Marie, for reminding me. Of course, remember that casting is... um uh, is, is is going on the nominations uh, for for casting the roles for this for season two is going on we're planning to talk about that in a few sessions but in the meantime we are giving you guys time to uh, uh, to make some to do some research and make some nominations for uh, what actors and actresses you would like to see cast into the roles uh, of the elves in season two here um, Marie says that we have uh, 30 roles in um, uh, total that we're casting for. No, wait. We have more than that, don't we? Have more than that? thirty. Uh, we have closer to forty, don't we? But anyway, she's currently that there are thirty of the roles have three or more nominations. Six of them have two nominations, and only two roles remain without a nomination. So, um, oh wait. Who, we don't have a nomination for Calabrian. Nobody has 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 has, n- has nominated somebody for. Cal- oh, come on now. Come on now. So, they're 37 total, Hakan. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, and uh, so, oh, so, Celebrion and Iminye, uh, the dead mothers of Arwen and Indus. Okay, so, Ingwe's wife and Arwen's mom. Right. Okay. So, come on. We need to cast somebody to play the dead mothers. You know, this is, uh, this is... Uh, uh, this is what we need still so yeah i'm surprised about Calabrian i would i would have thought that and i by the disclaimer i know i'm mispronouncing that name i know lay off <laughs> i'm gonna carry on mispronouncing it <laughs> i'm never going to pronounce Calabrian's name properly it's just i've come to live with that and so and and so should you um, but uh, uh, but I know Calabrian isn't dead. I know she's dead. But, like, the, 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 the two mothers who pass away uh, into the West, uh, Indus's mom and Arwen's mom. Exactly. Uh, Deadlines. So, yeah. So, Marie, how's this working again? So, we've got uh, – uh, we're, we're a week delayed because I was sick last week. So, we're going to have another session next week instead of two weeks from now. So, we're going to finish the outlines next week, he says very confidently. And, uh, and then we were going to do – uh, so we wanted to close the nominations by next time, right, so uh, uh, that we can have, we can begin voting uh, for the uh, winner among the nominations. So we're, we're, we're going to have voting happening starting next week-ish, right, so that we can have the voting to be able to talk about it the week after that, or the, the session after that that is my memory, my dim memory uh, of the uh, of the, the projection there so, so, no wait Marie says uh, voting openings fair so, so when do, Marie, when are nominations going to be closed? when do we just sort of have to decide by executive order that we have to find some member of the cast of Firefly to make Coebrian or something um Oh, we're gonna close nominations on Monday. Okay. All right. Alright. Yeah, well that's a lot then. Yeah. Okay. Pick a date. So yeah, we'll, we'll Monday then. All right. We'll say Monday. So so get to fast nominating. Yeah. Get to nominating. We need uh, 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 we need uh, um, we need a uh, Calibrian. Indus and Arwen need moms, so let's uh let's get to that. Um, and please do review those. Of course you may ask where can I find these things? On filmfilm.mythguard.org, on the discussion forums uh, that we have set up, is where you can find the casting forum uh, in order to do this. And, and you should also be able to find... Uh, guys, the outlines are there, right, as well, in the discussion forum, so people can see the outlines that we're going to be talking about here today. Um, so, uh, well, Nick, good. I am glad that at least one member of the Firefly cast was added to the nominees. That That, that certainly... I certainly had oh, I I will be disappointed if the entire cast of Firefly is not is not cast uh, uh, in some film at some point or other. Uh, I believe
2: it's Kaylee. I forget the role though.
1: Oh, Kaylee got nominated. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. What's her oh, real name, Jewel right. or something?
2: Jewel State.
1: Jewel State. Yeah. that's, I think I that's right. Yeah, Unfortunately, right. the guy who played Shepherd Book is dead, isn't he?
2: Yes, he did. Sadly, Ron Glass.
1: Yeah, Ron Glass died. That's what I. That's what I, thought, I thought I remembered that. So that is sad that, uh... He
2: was barely in the movie, though, so, you know, it's...
1: <laughs> I know, but the movie was not nearly as good as the series. He was great in the series. Yeah, I just, just
0: generally try to just... I just try not to think too much about the movie. Yes, yeah.
1: Well, the the
2: movie introduced me to the show, so it can't be that bad.
1: I, I agree. I agree, it's good. It just, it, it doesn't have the spirit. Anyway, never mind, we're not get into detailed Firefly <laughs> criticism, but, um, but, uh but yeah Marie I agree Nathan Fillion clearly has to be a human so we do have to wait a couple seasons to cast Nathan Fillion I I, I can't see Nathan Fillion as an elf uh, definitely but um anyway okay all um so uh Let's get to the outlines. So, uh, uh, we are joined by uh, Nick Palazzo here, who you're going to be the, the spokesperson for the outlines. So, you're the one that we get to put on the spot, which is awesome. So, let's, let's do, I'm going to start with a brief synopsis. And, Nick, you can correct me if I'm, if I'm uh, like butchering the synopsis. This is me doing an outline of the outline, right? Which is, uh, uh, which is, which is always perhaps a bit, a bit shaky. <clears throat> and you'll let me know if I get things wrong. So, just to recall so for everybody yeah episode one uh, is and then yeah Dave you can condense what I say right so, like into a tweet so it's perfect um, it's like the Good point. you know, the, the, like distilled essence of the outline having passed through a bunch of different hands so the first outline is the awakening right the the awakening of the elves um, and we have the uh, uh, we started with the frame of uh, of the the uh, the attack on uh, Celebrion and her being taken uh, by the orcs in the past. And we have sort of the juxtaposition of that with the hunter uh, uh, who is uh, taking elves from around Quivien and, and, of course, Arwen being disturbed about this and, and Celeborn telling her about how, you know, this has been an issue uh, since since the elder days. Um, and then we have the, uh, the, the Orame comes in. Right, so th- there's an orome sighting. You know, he sees them, and they see him, but they don't yet have the full interaction because he goes back to report uh, to uh, uh, to the Valar. Then, of course, as we recall from season one, the Valar, in response to the fi- to the finding of the elves, decide to unleash their war. They make the decision to 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 have to do the war that begins all wars at the end of season one, but we get this from the Elvish point of view, and they hear the rumblings in the distance, and there's, you know, and of course, as we recall from that battle, the way that we wrote it last year, um, there is uh, there is near the end an attack directly, an, an attempt to destroy the elves at Quivietin, which is uh, uh, which is barely circumvented, so they see that, of course, you know, there's like fire that comes right to the edge of the lake of Quiviendin itself. And then after that, Orame comes and and there's a lot of fear and uncertainty and then it's a it's uh the three ambassadors led by Ying Wei who go over and uh, uh and and meet with him and that's how the episode ends with the uh the the three of them coming to Though we don't uh nick as i recall we're, we're, we're not imagining actually getting dialogue between them it's just sort of them going over and standing before Orame, and that's where the episode ends
2: that, that had been a a point of some discussion. Um, My thinking was that we don't need to have any dialogue there except maybe a a basic greeting, Mm -hmm. Um, and and that's it. There had been some discussion of maybe a, a small conversation happening, but I personally am in favor of, at the most, just, you know, hello. (laughs) <laughs> yeah it
1: kind of that. seems to me like it would be anti like almost any kind of conversation they have it would be hard to end the episode like it'd be it'd be easy to end the episode with a visual tableau right but it would be hard to yeah. be like hey hi um I'm Ingwe who are you like I'm Orame I come in peace yeah. okay that's nice like where does the conversation end like uh-huh. what's the fit moment like the you know to roll credits exactly in that conversation I'm not really sure um so, yeah, I kind of, it kind of does seem a visual tableau would be sort of the safest. What do you think about that, Dave? Any, any thoughts about that conversation? Or is there like a, you know, a, a point in a conversation between them where we could stop or like a, a single line that could be delivered perhaps between them? Can you see how, how that could work at the I mean, end of the episode? To,
0: it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine doing it in a way that's not going to feel silly.
1: Yeah. 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 Um, and of course, the whole like I come in peace thing. You know, one of the things obviously that we have to <laughs> Let's deal definitely with... not do that. Well, exactly. I know, right? But that's the thing. I mean, one of the things that we have to deal with when when we have this kind of encounter is that you know we're going to have like alien encounters in a hundred science fiction movies lo- looming in the background of people's minds, right? Well, not just
2: that, but also first contact between cultures, right. um, especially between. Cultures that are more advanced versus cultures that are more, for lack of a better word, primitive, technologically. Right. right. That's the same right. kind of thing. So there's cultural baggage that comes along with that as well.
1: Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We don't want them to look like, you know, we don't we don't want the valor to look like imperialists or colonists or something like that. Yes. Yes. Yep, I agree. So... Um, I suppose, then, the safest thing would be also, in that sense, to have no dialogue. Because, again, any line that I can think of giving them, I don't know. It would be a hard line to write, a single line or, you know, how the dialogue would go.
2: Just having, just having, uh, Ingwe, say, reading in Elvish is the only thing I can think of that would, that would work from my point
1: of view. Right. But even that, I mean, what would it be? And, and, or, but more importantly, what would the point of it be? That is, what would we want to convey in that one line? I would think his reverence, right? But even that might come across kind of weird. I mean, how does he greet him? Does he call him Lord, for instance, right? Showing reverence for him? And if so, does that come across weird? Because he's never met him before. He doesn't know what he is right? Um, the, the fact that a bunch of the other elves are like, dude, this guy could be the hunter, you know, some mysterious horseman has been hauling people off out of the woods, and now you're going to go up to the first mysterious hunter who rides up to the shore of the lake and, uh, and, and, and you know, be fine with that? I'm just going to yeah. say hello? Yeah, exactly. We're just going to, yeah. Um,
2: well, that's the basis of the whole conversation before they leave, so yeah.
1: Exactly. Exactly, yeah. So given that, you know his response you know what he actually says is is i mean it's it's a step beyond you know if if ingwe has gone as far as saying no we should go meet with him i am willing to go meet with him i think that we should we should not just cower here we should not run away um i think that we could um you know so okay but again now so but what does he do? You know, does he does he does he go whole hog and show reverence and you know something almost like worship? Um, in which case, he might look like a mindless zealot, and we wouldn't want him to look like a mindless zealot, exactly. You know, I don't know. It's it is tricky, and I, I do think that the easiest way to circumvent it is just to have it be a visual tableau. Um, we can show him standing there, sort of in respect and even fear. Um, and have uh, you know maybe the final image of that scene of the of that scene is just Oramay smiling at them right you know when they they come over and Oramay smiles um, you know show his happiness at seeing them and because again remember one of the one of the interesting elements here um, one of the things that I love most about the episode uh, one outline is just the. Th- I love the Elvish perspective and what you guys have done with the Elvish perspective. I love the way in which, um, I I think it works really well um, to be going back over terrain that we did at the end of the last episode, or at the end of the last season, but to be persistently Elvish in the point of view, um, you know, pretty much through the whole thing, so that we we're really kind of seeing, like, here's what this would look like from their point of view. And because, and, again, from, from the viewer's point of view, they know who Arme is, right? And they know that he is trustworthy. And what's more, they know what lies behind his visit, especially his second visit. Um. But... But the elves don't. And so being able to, sh- so the way in which, uh, like, sort of showing Orame's delight at the response of Yngwie, uh, you know, and the other ambassadors there at the end, um, is, I think, a really good way to kind of, at the end of the episode, make a connection with the audience's perspective, right? Um, it, it's, it's it's like Orame sharing a moment with the audience, in a sense. Um, yeah, yeah. And,
2: on the wall a little bit. Sorry, go ahead. I said leaning on the fourth wall a little bit. I
1: was going to yeah. say,
0: if we wanted to be really hokey, we could have a wink at the screen. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Not quite so far as that. But yeah, yeah, it, exactly. I mean, it's to at least have the audience aware of the fact that they, like, you know, sort of share an understanding with Orame. Um, and therefore, can appreciate the significance of what has happened. And Marie, I agree. the 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 courage uh, of Ingwe in reaching out to Orame, is that's the note that we want to strike. It's not like blind zealotry, but his uh, his courage that um, uh, that is really emphasized. Definitely, definitely. Um, so yeah, and and uh the, the way it works with the battle is really is is re- the way that the elvish perspective works with the battle is really really good. Um the fact that it looks like how that is going to feed in on their reactions cuz it's it's you know the text itself um the text it's you know the, the Silmarillion emphasizes that the form of the black the fact that the the dark rider had taken that form um both had the effect of making some of the elves pointedly suspicious of Orme, and it and the narrator reveals had been intended to have that effect, right? Um, so we already have that, um, and we have that you know the first time that uh, that that Orme shows up, but the way that that you guys have interjected the Elvish perspective on the battle is super cool, I think. Because, of course, the way that that, you know, that's something that the text doesn't emphasize exactly. Um, There's no reason to think that the Elves would not be aware of this. I mean, there were major repercussions, like, on a geological level (laughs) to that first battle. So there's no reason to think the Elves weren't aware of the fact that something was going on right um but i love the way that you guys have imagined that you know that so first they have the dark rider kidnapping folks then this shining rider appears and they're really not sure what's up with that and whether they can trust this guy and then like it appears like the end of the world is coming and there's this cataclysm that is uh that comes at at the end quite near to it looks like destruction is about to and and so then they're you know the speculation that that leaves them with right what does this mean what you know who was doing that you know who is uh, what kind of trouble is brewing for us over the horizon that we're hearing all of these horrible sounds and and seeing all these terrifying sights and then the shining rider shows up again right is this a good thing or a bad thing and the way that that really amplifies the uncertainty to them of the situation and, uh, and everything. I think that's great. I, 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 th- I think that works really, really well. I was, I was really excited about that reading through the, uh, uh you know, coming back to it again and reading it through.
2: Yeah. Well, one of, the, and I forget who it was, who had said it, but, um, somebody at some point came up, you know, realized, wait a minute, this battle is going on for years for decades, yes. this is not something – this isn't just happening and then, you know, oh, well, that's over and we move on with our life. It The world is shaking and going crazy for years, mm-hmm. and then it
1: stops. Mm-hmm. You and know, that's got to be terrifying in itself. Like, what does that right. mean?
3: Yeah.
2: Because you have, you know, like kids have grown up with the world being like this.
1: <laughs> yes.
3: <laughs>
1: yes. Or not, or they've stopped procreating. Yeah, but exactly.
2: Well, well, like, we we open up with Celeborn as, like, a a teenager-ish. And, obviously, by the end of the episode, he's an adult.
1: Right, right. Yeah, that was one of the things, by the way, kind of general comment. Um, The passage of time and the way you guys handled the passage of time, um, I found really interesting. And interesting in the sense of, like, I'd be really interested to see how it actually worked. Um, because there are a bunch of episodes like that, a a, a bunch of episodes in which lots of time passes during the course of the episode, right? So like, we're to understand that the, uh, you know, in the course of the like one hour episode that you're watching, possibly centuries have, have, of, of time have elapsed. Um, and not just in a single gap, right? Not, not just a, like, you know, we come back from a commercial break with the legend, you know, 150 years later. Uh, you know, but just sort of like scene by scene, we're sort of expected to. And on the one hand, I think that's it's likely to be challenging to really convey that, and it might come across as strange at times. You know, when people be like, "Wait, why? Why is? Uh, you know, wh- why is this guy aged so much in the last five minutes?" Right. But at the same time, if it could work without confusion or seeming strange or funny. I really like it. I like hope it works essentially um, mm. because the general impression that I got from the way that you guys did handle the passage of time over the course of the outlines was essentially that you guys were just kind of sort of trying to operate within an Elvish context. Cause this is how it would seem to them. Right. Yes. You know, yeah. like it's, well, and, and yeah.
2: things happen like people grow up, buildings get erected so like you know you can show like for example during the building of Tyrion which we're going to get to you can show over time you can show the you know the structures getting taller or being completed so so on
1: right but those external uh, uh, things can can certainly though again so even there though but it's not like we can show the steady progress all the way through I mean there will be scenes right where in one scene uh, you know, we're at this setting and, you know, as you say, we're, we're we're seeing people, like, laying the foundations at Tyrion, right? And then, the next time we return to that location, like, two scenes later, in the same episode, um, this, you know, we're at the same spot, it and
3: those,
1: you know, those towers are now finished. It certainly does give the viewer some kind of external context to, to understand that time has passed, but it, like, it's still chancy, right? I mean, it could just be weird. Um, you know, like one of those, uh, uh, you know, like one of those sort of joke TV commercials where every time the camera goes back to the person, they're dressed in something different, you know? It, it could have something almost like that, if if you understand what I mean. Because well, one thing, go on. Because we're used to, like, the, the standard assumption, right, is that unless we're told, and time has passed now, you know, um, you know you're not supposed to see this as, like, a continuation, continuous and uninterrupted action. That's the thing, right? Is it's like we're, we're sort of depicting as uninterrupted action stuff that actually takes place over the course of centuries. Now, again, in theory, I love that because that's how it would be to the elves. Right. They would see this thing that unfolded over the course of a century as being essentially one scene, right? Uh, and one single unbroken, uh, uh, I mean, who cares that it was interrupted by you know what to a human being would be the passage of many years um, you know, or the passage of a significant chunk of their life or of several lives. Um, that doesn't matter to them. It's not how they look at the world. So the way that this kind of immerses us in an elvish point of view, I think, I mean, if we... It, it, if it could be pulled off, would be absolutely fantastic.
0: Um, if we can make it work,
1: yeah,
2: yeah. Well, this well, also this is the first time that this has happened because, like, because we're going to get these these realizations that oh, that took a long time as we go on. For example, the battle, the war to begin all wars mm-hmm. in episode thirteen of season one, that looks to us, the viewer. Like right. it's over in a few hours, right. but then we're going to come back in in this episode and show that no, 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 that went on for years, right, right. And it, it, like we're going to get these realizations as time goes on. No, the elves are not just super fast builders,
1: <laughs> right, you right. Know. Right. Exactly. And I love that. I love that. And, and you know, the, 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 fact that that correlates with the shift in perspective, right? When we look at things from the Valar point of view, here's what it looks like. But when we look at things from the Elvish point of view, here's what it looks like. And of course, we're setting up the fact when we look at things from the human point of view, here's how it's going to look. Um, so yeah, I, I, again, I, I think it's, um, it's a gutsy thing to really depict. And I say, you know, gutsy, I don't know that we have much way around it, frankly. Um, we're kind of stuck with it because it is the reality of Elvish, uh, of Elvish uh, perspective. But uh, but it's really fun to kind of be thinking about that deliberately um, and working on how that gets uh, how that gets depicted. I agree. Marie says that Kelborn growing up from child actor to adult is essential for showing the passage of time. Um, absolutely, yeah. No, the the markers that time is passing and that you know that we're getting that you know that's. Um, I I, I I guess the 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 issue that I'm trying to point to is what could be the cognitive dissonance between, on the one hand, we are showing people these are these are disconnect these these scenes you know the different scenes within this episode are disconnected in time, and yet at the same time we're telling them this is one continuous scene you know this is one this is this is one episode in the life of the elves even though it's. Protracted over the course of centuries, and we can see the evidence of time passing around them. And those two things, I think that people are not really are not really used to. Um, I mean, to uh, it makes me think, of course, of the. Uh, um, well, it makes me think because I'm both a nerd and an English teacher about the uh, the, the 18th century Shakespeare debates, right? The whole – I mean, you were probably taught – everybody was probably taught in high school at some point about the uh, – you know the the classical theatrical unities that Shakespeare broke. Right, you were supposed to maintain in a play the unity of of, of place and the unity of time. Uh, that is, you know, the, the 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 scene that is depicted on the stage is is supposed to be one scene, right? And uh, and and it's supposed to take place during the course of one day, so that you're basically watching contemporaneous action. Um, And how Shakespeare famously broke those unities and didn't do things, you know, the way that he was supposed to. And uh, all of that stuff is all a little bit not really true to what happened historically, but it's fine. Anyway, everybody kind of, you know, that's how people are taught this in English classes. And um, the, the point is, of course, as the later critics who criticized the critics who said those silly things about the unities said, it's not really how imagination works. Um, you know, it, we don't actually demand the unity of uh, the unity of place and the unity of time when we're watching a drama unfold. Um, uh, as uh, uh, Samuel Johnson very famously said, "Someone who can imagine that the wooden stage in front of them is Alexandria uh, is capable of imagining more." Right? You know, they're, they're 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 capable of imagining in the next scene that it's Rome. Uh, so, uh, it, that's not in fact too much to ask, but still. One of the things, one of the ways in which I think the idea of the unity of time still does apply is if you just cut from one scene to another and you don't, like, say, like, okay, this is, this is, this is later. Like, this is a different storyline. This is a, you know, there's a, there's a gap between what happened in the last scene and, and what happened in this scene. Um, if the, if the, the dialogue and the action doesn't reflect the fact that there's a gap, um there's kind of an assumption that it's continuous, right? I mean, if we see these people, these elves reacting, you know, to the battle in one scene, and then we hear them, we see them debating in the next scene, we're going to assume that those things are contiguous chronologically, right? Um, so having the... Having there be actual discontinuity as far as or discontinuity as far as that goes, I think is going to be a little bit uh, uh, challenging but it's it's um well see no Marie it's not about needing cues it's actually the cues that I think are going to be the problem um, again if if, if 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 it looks like the same conversation essentially um If the background scenery, like if they're getting visual cues in the background to show that time is passing while what they view as one single conversation or debate is unfolding, that's what's going to be weird, actually. Um, It's the presence of cues that time is passing that I think is going to be the challenge, not the absence of them, if you see what I mean by that. That's where I think the cognitive dissonance may come in.
2: Yeah, I, I mean I don't think that um I don't think that we're trying to do that within scenes, although certainly within within episodes. So yeah, it's gonna be absolutely important it's gonna be absolutely critical that there are things said and the things that we see that indicate that 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 time has moved on. So when you know, for example, when we see adult Kelleborn, somebody needs to A, greet him, like, we need to know what we're going to know because we just saw him, yeah, we, so that's, that's an easy one, all right. but Feanor, for example, uh, when we, because we see him as, I believe we see him as a child, and then as adult, in a or a young adult, in the same episode, yes, and there needs to be an immediate um, reveal of who he is, or at least a quick reveal of who he is, pretty early on, so that we know that, what story we're following now,
1: right, right yeah 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 well anyway i don't want to belabor it more than i already have but it's i i I do think this is a really interesting thing and um, will be a fascinating experiment in sort of showing the elvish view of time Um, but uh, um, okay Uh, comment about the frame um I'm not addressing the outline obviously in any particular order <laughs> comment about the frame when we I know when we did our 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 kind of frame review episode just recently um that was kind of the last episode wasn't it uh, it's quite recent actually um, we were talking about um the the Sort of the opening and the the, the 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 juxtaposition, you know, when to do the the memory of the uh, the kidnapping of uh, Calibrian and stuff. And as I was reading through the outline, I was just like, you know, the um, uh, the parallel between the Dark Hunter who is kidnapping elves in the wood and and Calibrian being taken by the orcs. That is just like too perfect to uh, this. So. If in the frame episode I was entertaining the idea of doing something else, I, I rescind it. That's just awesome. It works really, really well. I love it. Uh, I'd say, like, had forgotten how much I loved that. So, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Yes, Marie, you're, Marie is pushing me on to episode two. You're completely right. Um, two, two quick notes, and then I'll move on to episode two. I promise they'll be quick. Um, one. I would be careful about having there be too much discord and disagreement among the elves. Um, This is in episode one, I mean, Um, because I, I don't want to undermine the conflict that we get in episode three. When we come back and we're having the debates with the soon to be avari, I feel like that should be jarring. It's not that everything needs to be perfect uh, at Qui right? We don't really need it to be like the Garden of Eden, but I'd kind of like it to be a little bit like the Garden of Eden, um, just in the sense of, like, there being harmony and concord. Um, Fear, right? We know there's fear. We know there's uncertainty. But I think that episode three, when the conflict breaks out among them, is going to be at its most powerful If it's really the first time that kind of thing has happened, if that's really kind of shocking, right? Um, Tony, exactly. I I would like to establish that harmony is their default state. Um, So there can be tension, you know, about do we or do we not go against Orome. But what I wouldn't want is debate. Like, I think we can show some people hanging back, like, we can show that there's a variety of reactions. uh, and we can even, you know, perhaps have some people saying, like, no, don't go, Ingwe, or whatever. Like, they can, but not like a, like, I don't want to have, like, debate and factions emerging.
2: Not animosity.
1: Exactly. No animosity, no factionalization, no, like, lines drawn conflict kind of thing because basically if we do that in episode if we let that creep into episode one episode three is just going to look like man these divisive elves like this is just what they do all the time like can they ever get along and you know obviously the discord among the elves goes back really really far but i don't think we we, i think we want to make sure that we don't show discord as being like the primeval state uh of them um now, Karita points out very sensibly that fear can, can unify as well as divide. You know, do we want their fear to bring them together? Um, yeah, I, 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 I guess, Karita. I think the way that I would kind of play that is they're all afraid. You know, they're all afraid of the, the war that's happening off in the distance. They're all afraid of the Dark Rider. They're all afraid when Orame shows up. I mean, who's not afraid? Um, is afraid, but uh, with the difference is in their different reactions, to their fear and how they respond to their fear. So again, we can show differences, and we can show even even tension of a of a kind. Um, yeah, just not not animosity, not not debate. Uh, I would say. Um, and my my other one point uh, is, I absolutely loved. The interruption of the feast by Orome—that that is fantastic. That is just absolutely brilliant that they're having a feast of celebration of the end of the war and then their feast is interrupted by Orome showing up. That is like so delicious from a Silmarillion perspective that I just couldn't handle it. So I just, my compliments on that touch, especially that was my favorite touch of the entire first episode, uh, brilliant. And of course, because it, it's an inside need, joke that... We need to find
0: ways to insert that element at every possible opportunity. Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just a trend. On
0: one way or the other.
1: Yeah. It's fantastic. I mean, it's it's an inside joke, of course, that, like, most viewers won't get. But it's okay. Like, it, it establishes... It's like an Easter egg for people who do know the Silmarillion well. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and a particularly delightful one, I think. Um... And uh, it's but 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 it also kind of establishes, you know, a really interesting, uh, you know, sort of point of comparison for later on. I think it's I think it's really I think it's really cool. Um, yes. Yeah. So anyway, OK. Episode two, Marie, I'm off. Here I go. Episode two. So um, episode two is the uh, uh, Starlight episode. It's the uh, uh, it's the one where um, the ambassadors. Go to uh, uh, go to to Valinor, um, and this was the rewrite. Yeah, this is the rewrite. Yeah, I was looking at the rewrite of that, and um, uh, so this is where in the frame we're talking about introducing the uh, the subplot of Arwen's friend who's made her decision to go to uh, to to Valinor. Um, no, wait, that's not this one. Is that this one? Yes, it is this one. It is right, that happens in this yes.
2: episode. Yes, yeah, we we introduce not, her here. Yes. I'm not making that
1: up. Okay, right, yeah, okay, um, <clears throat> and uh, we have the uh, the debate of the Valar, right? So the the Valar decide, you know, they have their debate about whether or not to invite the Elves. They decide generally yes, and uh, and and that's why Olmo has re- or Olmo Orome has returned. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we have some uh, uh, behind-the-scenes, like, you know, concerns expressed by, you know, Olmo and others about uh, this decision, because, of course, as we've talked about, this is a big deal, and this is basically the Valar making a mistake, and so we want to depict the fact that the Valar are making a well-intentioned mistake here. Uh, and, uh, and of course, then we get the visit the visit of the, uh, uh, of, of the ambassadors to Valinor and some of their interactions with the Valar. And some heavy foreshadowing with uh, Finway and the birth of Theonorm. So, um, I thought this was so. First of all, uh, who, who's the friend? We still don't have a name for the friend. We have to. We have to. We, I know we had talked about this being an actual Avari from the debate. Um, uh, what? What was the? Th- I mean, I could. You guys have kind of left the friend sort of blank. You've just called her friend all the way through the outlines uh nick can you tell us a little bit about the uh, way your thinking has gone about that
2: as far as the name of the friend or is the f- friend itself the identity herself. of the friend
1: like what
2: okay um so the our hope is to make her more or less peer of arwen of because arwen. As, as you mentioned in uh in the last episode last time we talked about this she's kind of full up on mentor figures yep. especially in uh especially in Lothlórien um so the intention i believe um, is to have have her friend be somebody who was with her in uh, in Rivendell and they come to uh they come to Lothlórien um for like, uh, it's like the goodbye tour, right? Because they know that she's getting ready to leave. At least that's the the way that I interpreted the last time that we talked about
1: this. Okay, okay. Okay, and uh, so uh, Marisa she's named her Irian. Irian, which means Daisy. Okay, all right. Irian and <coughs> Arwen. Um, so they're like sister figures, all right? Yeah, Carita says with, uh, since she's got twin brothers, so Arwen needs a gal pal. I get that, that's fine. So she's a peer in the sense of being equally young, right? So, so she the friend she's like a she she's like a third age phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, sure, okay, all right. So the friend doesn't have any recollections or connections to the. Well, is she Noldor? The friend.
2: Um, I feel like that would be the the most likely situation right. if she lives in Rivendell. I mean, there's no reason she has to be, but
1: yeah, you know. Yeah. Cuz yeah, okay, so Noldo, so, cuz I'm thinking I mean cuz if she's a Noldo, right, we should work out her lineage, right? Wh- who with who with whom is she connected? Like is she, wh- what what house would she be in? I'm not saying obviously that this has to come up in conversation, but but we should know it even if only for the purposes of future you know cameos and implications, but it you know, it's obvious it's, it's going to have some kind of significance. Um
2: yeah, we want to make sure that on the in the DVD extras the family tree is correct.
1: Exactly. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, that uh, would just be embarrassing. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. If we don't get the family trees correct, it's and it's good that we give proper thought to the DVD extras at this stage. Um, uh, not that DVDs will still be a thing when this finally is produced, you know. But um, anyway. Uh, okay. I agree Marie she shouldn't be royalty. Um uh she uh Maria's thinking she should be uh one of the leftover folk of a so she could be one of Celebrimbor's people. Okay. Oh,
0: that's a that's an
1: intriguing notion. Possibly. Um uh That would make sense. Certainly that would explain how she ended up in Rivendell, for instance. Um, now, Tony still likes the idea that she was more a uh, I kind of do too, though in some ways it simplifies the thing if she's not, um, you know, if she's from the Noldor houses. That is, it kind of simplifies her, especially if she's Arwen's peer. Right, um, When I was proposing her being Mora Quendi back when we were discussing this, that's when I was still thinking of her as more of a mentor figure than a peer figure. And if she's a mentor figure, then she would have had this longer wealth of experience and have been connected to the earlier stories. A, a Mora Quendi who's been around for the whole time and now has decided, like, the time has come to go, is in a very different place. If she's a third-age Mora Quendi, I mean, if she's, a th- if she's just like one of the Nandar... One of the Nandor or something, who um, you know has been hanging out in Rivendell for for reasons, um, and uh, is friends with Arwen, and then just decides like, eh, okay, I'm out of here. I'm going to go to Valinor. It puts her in a different relationship, uh, and I think a, possibly a more strained relationship with the whole where do elves belong question. Um, whereas someone who is of the Noldor. Uh, and makes that decision. It's, it's a more natural decision, in a sense. I don't know. I mean, at least as far as the themes of the season are concerned, it just seems to me to kind of work uh, more. Um,
3: but
2: my, my concern about her being more Quindy would be that she would have gone through every phase of the thought process that Arwen is now going through, which means that when they have their like final discussion, everything is going to get spilled out. And we're not going to have any room to talk about anything right. concerning it. Right. So having her be Noldor mean, makes it less of a – it means that she has not necessarily had to have gone through all of the – like this. Could, she could be just doing this because that's what you do.
1: It's what you do. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that does make more sense from a Noldor perspective, that it's what you do as a Noldor. Like the, the Noldor – Middle-earth are, 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 are merely tarrying here. Whereas, um, what the, what the, the, you know, the, the Mora Quendi, Teleri are doing is, is something beyond, uh, beyond tarrying at this point. Um, yep. Yeah, okay. Okay. I can buy that. that all that'll, the idea of making her appear makes, does make that seem to fit, fit better. Um, okay. That's good. Um, i love the deb- the the idea the setting the debate of the valar in the ruins of utumno um i love that i thought that was really cool having the, you know so as soon as melkor is taken captive um they immediately convene there in the wreck. and so this is like our farewell to utumno right we're never going to see it again so showing utumno shattered uh and you know, Manway sort of holding court there on Atumno, I think is really is is a really neat uh, sort of visual connection back to season one. Uh, I love that. Um, uh, so and what I liked just as much in this episode um, was the emphasis that I, cause I, don't, I don't think I mean, remind me if I thought of this. I don't think I thought of this, but I've been surprised before Um that I am I, I'm, I'm I think this was this was your idea about the defection uh, or the apparent or possible defection of Olmo, right? The discontent of Olmo with the decision and his resistance to that, and the the idea that we would allow the question to emerge in the minds of our viewers, like is Olmo going to be you know so having just established reestablished the peace right through the through the war with uh with Melkor, is it all going to happen again right is now ulmo going to defect and and uh and and go his own way and and there's going to be i love that i mean i i i i i think that's really neat because of course ulmo is uh you know kind of a free agent you know he's he is um Confesses himself at times to be working even against the will of his of his peers, right? I mean he he is um, Omo is uh, is obviously chaotic, good, right? He 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 goes his own way, um, and that
2: And he's the wrong. more elementally scary of the Valar. I mean, Mandos and Oromë are scary in their own way. Omo though has like the broad sweeping power of the tsunami at his beck and call, right. so.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, the, the the fact that that lurks out there is a possibility, right? The possibility of uh, um, of of Olmo actually not changing sides exactly. because it's, it's not like he's joining with Milko, but that the Valar might splinter again. I think I, that's. I love that. I mean, obviously, we can't go too far with that, but I, but I, um, I love that. And but my but the my I love. The Virae scenes, love them absolutely. Every every single Virae scene you got the way that you guys interwove uh, the the scenes of Vire weaving and the revelation of her tapestry with uh, of her sort of uh, prophetically ambivalent uh, tapestry of Muriel and uh, Finway and Baby Feanor. I th- was that was just that was gorgeous. Absolutely loved that. Um, uh, in fact, I think I can safely say in episodes 1 through 7, I love everything that Vire does. Every time Vire comes in, I loved it. <laughs> Absolutely loved it. Um, the character of Vire as you guys are developing her, she becomes this especially since she doesn't speak, she becomes this like visual symbol of the foreknowledge of the of the uh, of the Valar, right? She becomes she becomes the visual representation of doom. It's Fantastic! That's just great. You know, Mando's is the one who proclaims doom, but to have Vire be the one like, and now, but meanwhile behind the scenes like doom is being woven, right? It's it's anyway, yeah. It's uh, it's fantastic. Karita uh, now thinks I've given you so many compliments in a row that I'm that I'm uh, buttering you up for uh, uh, for for something truly horrible here soon. Um, uh, no, no, I just really liked episode two actually. Um, the Okay, well, Camina, the, there, there there are a couple things I would say. There are a couple criticisms I have to make, but they are totally outshone by the uh, by the by the compliments. Um,
2: well, before so, you get into those, I did want yeah. to let the, you know that the uh, the almost subplot I believe was Brian's baby. So, oh, was it cool? Just a, yes, I believe.
1: I like that. Well, because I mean, that's we can play the long game on that one, right? I mean, because that's. There are going to be plenty of times when Olmo is doing his own thing, and the other Valar can be like, "What the heck is Olmo up to? <laughs> like, what, is he actually trying to undermine us here? Is he playing his own game? What's you know, is this Melkor all over again?" Right. I mean, that can be a question that people are that people are actually asking. I think that's that's cool. That's cool. Um, uh, and again, that's that's something that will be relevant for you know the first ten seasons. So. Um, all the way up through. Remember the 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 final like Olmo's big gambit, the, like the Gondolin gambit, um by Olmo. Uh, I mean, all that stuff is basically still Olmo going rogue. Um, uh, cool. So anyway, my my critiques slash questions from episode two. Uh, uh f- we- you you uh, you wanted to have uh, uh, Finway doing arts and crafts time with Aule, which I think is great uh, in general. I like that. I think that's absolutely thing. It can't be jewels, though. Jewels are, are a pure Noldor thing. To have him making jewels with Aule makes it look like the Noldor learned about jewel craft from Aule. Um and we don't want that we want we want to 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 make sure that jewel craft is like this is something yes of course like the craftsmanship of olmo has like led the way for but it's really a discovery by the noldor and it's it's like the characteristic Noldoran thing um so yeah i would definitely want them to be doing just just something metal crafting or whatever yeah yeah um yeah
2: what what he's doing isn't super important
1: yeah yeah exactly just but like jewel crafting is super important so i just wanted to just wanted to just wanted to to, to, to mention that um uh, uh the okay so <laughs> the festival <laughs> uh and and our and Arwin's gift um i i wasn't I, I didn't love the high elf low elf thing um, and in particular, the way in which so in uh, the early part of the outline, we have like <clears throat> you know uh, Arwen has made a, a Varda thing, right? And Galadriel really likes it, but the a bunch of the other elves, you know, the other Galathrim are like they don't they they're like who's that, right? I mean they don't, they don't they don't they don't really they don't really get it. And so then you know there's this like conversation where Galadriel sort of reveals that like uh, you know a bunch of the you know. Uh, we don't. We don't really talk about Varda much around here. She doesn't. mean, as much to the, uh, to the you know to the Nandor, as she does to the Noldor. I'm not a. I'm not a huge fan of that. I don't know it. On the one hand, I mean, I get it. I get where that comes from. I mean, when Frodo meets Gildor in the Shire, he says. They are the High Elves, for they spoke the name of Elbereth, right? Like I, I, it's I'm not questioning it. Like it's if the fact that they called on Elbereth in Frodo's mind defines them as High Elves, it does suggest that indeed, you know, reverence of Elbereth is one of the markers of that, and that therefore, by extension, um, you know, the Sindar and the Nandor don't have the same relationship and wouldn't be calling on Varda, but it. I guess what I don't like about it is the way that it introduces a kind of... It would be really easy for Arwen and Goadriel to emerge from that uh, conversation looking like snobs. Or like the Illuminati of the elves. You know, for them to be like, well, you and I know what's really going on, but the ignorant masses, like, they really don't. And especially because that could make Galadriel look like, but I must... Uh, uh, I must um, you know, um, um, indulge the ignorant masses, and and I've been living with them for thousands of years, but I've never like told them about Varda. You know, I haven't bothered to enlighten them in any way. It's just, I, I don't. I mean, I'm not saying it's 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 not that I think it's wrong. As I said, it just the way that it comes off. I wasn't seeing, um first I felt that it could come off badly but then secondly as I was thinking about it I'm not sure I see the reason why that needs to come off at all you know like what is the purpose of introducing that high elf low elf distinction and low elf isn't really a thing I'm kind of joking about that but um I don't know Well, I I, I just I I wasn't sure what we accomplished exactly from that and why we need that in the frame I
2: can can give you the reason um There's a couple. So, the reason for having the scene as it's written now, period, is to be able to to segue into Varda. That's the the simplest explanation for that. Okay. Um, However, the reason, I mean, because there are distinctions between the different kinds of elves, and we're about to kind of get into how that takes place, so, right. to be able to show some kind of distinction between the high elves and the the uh, morwendi to you know it kind of sets us up for what's about to happen next okay that's the reason for right. for it being in there and I feel like we can that you know with through specific dialogue writing and acting choices, it cannot necessarily come off like. Galadriel and Arwen walk away from the servants who go back down into the kitchen downstairs, you you know, like, that can be written in a way that isn't going to come off that way.
1: Sure, sure. I think my problem is, ultimately what it draws attention to is the gap between Galadriel and her people.
2: Which there Uh, is one.
1: Yes, but I'm not actually sure how big that would be. That is, there's lots of. We know that there is a gap between the high elves and the low elves, but we also know that in those places, as often happens, where one of the high elves comes and is embraced as the leader of a nation of dark elves, you know, a nation of Moraquendi, as of course, first, uh, you know, as as we get it with first and foremost with uh, with Doriath, right where Elway is the sole Caliquendi because he went as an ambassador over to Valinor and he's got, you know, a, a Maya wife. Um, and, you know, so the, the, the gray elves of Doriath um, are the first example. Goadriel in Lothlorien, of course, is another example. Uh, Thranduil and his lineage uh, in Mirkwood is another example. But the, the thing is not just that there's a difference between the leader and the people, but that the leader when that leader becomes the leader of those people, it changes the people. Um, the elves of Doriath, the gray elves of Doriath are different from the green elves, not just because they're culturally different because they've been separate, but they're they're brought upwards by Thingol and Melian, leading them and being there among them. And I think that Galadriel would also have, like, the Galathrim would not be exactly the same as oh, their great. cousins in Mirkwood or as other avari- uh, for instance, who were you know further out to the east and never you know lived with Galadriel and Celeborn. Um So I I I think that I'm in other words I'm not really sure. Frodo says they must be high elves because they called on Elbereth, but I'm not sure that that particular Hobbit heuristic would be correct of elves of of Lothlorien. Um, you know, he may be, doubtless he's learned that from Bilbo, right? That uh, you can always tell, like, if they're calling, you know, the, it's the high elves who call on, uh, on Elbereth. Um, this, this piece of, of, of elf, you know, of, well, like, hobbit elf lore, um, doubtless holds true. But I think the Goathrim might well be an exception to it. And that Bilbo would have recognized them as an exception, had he been there. But he's never been there, so his lore to Frodo wouldn't include that. I'm just not su- do, do Do you see what I mean? I'm just not really sure that that would actually be true. And it it seems to just put Galadriel in a weird place. Like, have you kept it to yourself, Galadriel? Like you don't tell them about Varda? Like, so you just, what, you have a private relationship with Varda and you're like, but the people, I mean, my people don't need to know? I, it just, I'm not sure. It just, it seems to me that the embracing of Galadriel as, as their leader is something that's going to change, that needs to change, that is supposed to change, the Galathrim.
2: Oh, yeah, there's no doubt. And yes, I, I do think that it's possible that the, um, that the Galathrim wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily have any reaction to something like this at all. Um, it's also possible that it what I don't think is necessary is for it to come off like the Galathrim don't even know who Varda is.
1: Right, like they're they're that, they're, that, they're ignorant. Yes. They're,
2: right. What they may not be super in tune with is why she's why why uh arwen is connecting her to this particular event um it, yes they know that she made the, the stars but why would you necessarily go ahead and you know we're just enjoying the stars we don't need to necessarily focus so much on uh, on how it, you know on varda making
1: them right right yeah we'll see but here's the other thing, even if there's not a, a pure ignorance question, right. Mm-hmm. There's still like, it begins to sound or to feel like a religious orthodoxy question. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and that's uncomfortable too. You know, I, I mean, I'm not sure that I want it to feel like that either. Um, you know, like the, the. Yeah. Um, Like, Galadriel knows that, you know, follows the true church of the Valar and the Goathrim don't. You know, I like there's the... Pri- you know, I, 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 I don't... That whole weirdness I would want to avoid. Anyway, I guess at the end of the day, what I'm saying about that scene in the frame is... I don't wholly just dis- I don't disagree with it. Like I'm not saying it's wrong and I can see how it fits and I can see how it works. It just it's for my money the possible downfalls outweigh the possible gains from it, I guess at the end of the day. Um, is is Point taken. what uh, is is I, yeah. The ways in which that could go wrong seem to me to outnumber what we get from it, especially since I'm not sure how much Foreshadowing of the divisions we need or even want necessarily. I again, I'd kind of like to have that be shocking. Um, episode three should be like when when the elves dissolve into conflict. I think should be should be shocking. Um, which is which is one of the reasons, by the way. Also, I wasn't a huge fan of of like Muriel snapping at folks. Uh, I mean, I like the meanwhile back at Quivien we're telling stories about the, those elves who went away into the West and never returned. I, I like that. Again, showing the passage of time and the idea that, you know, we, we talked about that some in the original in our in our original session on it. But um, but again, like that. I want to save conflict. Right. I, I want I I, I I think that episode three will work best if it's the first time we've ever had elves yelling at each other.
2: <laughs> well, the problem is that that also removes some of the conflict and and, and drama from episodes one and two. So it's a, it's a careful balancing act that we're trying to walk there. Um, no, it's
1: okay. But see, I think there's, there, there's enough, there's enough to explore. There, there are enough ideas to explore without there having to be interpersonal conflict. Um, I'm not a big believer in the absolute necessity of interpersonal conflict. Um, I. Uh,
2: it, it comes in pretty handy in a television episode, I'm just Well,
1: saying. I know. But see, I don't know. <laughs> I acknowledge it's what is normally done. Um, but of course, as people know who have followed me for a long time, this is how it's always done is never a great way to convince me personally. Um, it, uh, it could be,
2: however, that the people who are doing it are doing it because it it, it gets eyeballs on televisions and stuff but like it that. it
1: also could be that it's one of the things that makes 90% of TV boring mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and pointless. To, well, to,
2: to, certain, to certain people, yes, but... They they don't make it that way because people don't watch it.
1: Sure. You know? Yeah. Whatever. But fortunately, since uh, we don't have to worry about mercenary things like ratings and can focus that's true. on that's true. just like the making of the perfect artistic uh uh, <laughs> uh thing. Um I this is um yeah, I'm trying to think of where was the uh Where was the time that I... Oh, yeah. Um, Star Trek. So I've been watching Star Trek. I've been tweeting about this. I've been doing my completionist view of Star Trek, which I began last year in celebration of, of the 50th anniversary. One of the things that annoyed me most about the original Star Trek series was the fact that Bones absolutely has whatever Spock says, and it doesn't matter what Spock says. Spock can be saying the most perfectly obvious thing in the world, right? Um... Uh, You know, Spock could just be saying there are people over there. We should go over and talk to them and see what they are. And you can guarantee Bones is going to take the opposite. View. He's, he's going to be like, no, that's just crazy. You crazy Vulcan. And it's like, and even when the things that he says are idiocy or self contradictory at times, yet always, always, always Bones must oppose Spock. And we must have Bones and Spock giving alternate views and Kirk deciding between them. Like that happens all. the And like it, be, it, it, it became like the, the, the at, times now I'd love Spock and bones there are two of my favorite characters and I and I enjoyed the original series more than I remembered enjoying it before but that element always bothered me it's like and 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 honestly that's what what it felt like was like we have a formula that we must stick to like there must be um, there must be um, there must be conflict like you know we can't we we, we can't all be agreeing and and it just annoyed me. Um, Now, Karita asks, what would I rather see instead of conflict? Um, There's a lot of things that you can work out. People don't have to disagree. What you need is movement, right? You need to be thinking about, like, how do you get from one place? So there can be suspense. There can be mystery. uh, There can be, like, discovery without interpersonal conflict. People don't have to fight about it. So, for instance, going back to Muriel in the camp, Um, there can be suspense, uncertainty, loneliness, like are the question, are they ever coming back? Right. The fact that some elves have obviously given up on them coming back and Muriel holding out hope that they return can be conveyed. The fact that she does not think that everyone doesn't think alike can be conveyed to, to show the different ways that people are responding to this, which, you know, it's, you know, are they going to come back? Um, that can be a question that gets put before without them having to actually fight about it on screen, you know, without actually having to have interpersonal conflict between people on screen. That's the, that, that, that's the part of the formula that always seems to me too formulaic and that I, I often kind of dislike, like, let's not, why do we, I feel like, so whenever I watch TV, which is not that often because a lot of this stuff and I mean, I, 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 I get annoyed by by ill written TV shows, and I don't have that much time anyway. Um, but what what an, when I get annoyed by TV is when it's like how much time is spent just manufacturing conflict between people, like you you know you and uh, anyway. So I I I, I think uh, having people like she. The, she can be thinking about it, wondering about it, talking about it, right? She can be saying like, "No, like they're going to come back," but it doesn't have to be. They don't have to be fighting. There doesn't have to be conflict, interpersonal okay. conflict, again. You,
2: well, okay. I mean, that, that's fair. The only question I would have is, how would you react if you found out if you found somebody saying that your significant other had gone off and was never coming back?
1: Um. Uh, well. Of course it depends. I mean, I get the yeah. fact as well. Like I'm willing to concede Muriel as you have depicted her is, you know, she's fairly spunky. Mm-hmm. Um so I mean, one could respond to that in sadness, of course obviously, it would resonate with her own fears. She has yeah. to be concerned that they're never coming back. She has to be suspecting yeah that it's possible they're never coming back. And then, of course, different people respond to that in different ways. Um, That's true. You know, either lashing out at, you know, she might, it might, you know, lead to a melancholy interlude or it could lead to her lashing out at the person. Either one of those things works psychologically as a response Mm -hmm. to that, depending on your, on the psychology you begin with, right? Right. Um, I I do grant that the way that Muriel does it uh, is, uh, um, is, or rather the way that you guys depict Muriel, the lashing out does seem a little bit more likely, but, um, uh, but. Yeah. That, that's the, that's the only consideration
2: that, yeah. that I had in mind for that. Um, I mean, it, it can be, it can be toned down. There's no question that, it, that it can be made to work. It's just, you know, it's a big deal. The thing that she's reacting to. And so yeah. I just yeah. didn't want to lose sight of that.
1: But I want to make sure we finish talking about episode two or Dave's going to make fun of me Um, Mm. because episode two episodes is what he predicted at the beginning of the show. Um, (laughs) Walking a fine line. (laughs) As you guys acknowledged in the outline, the choice of Varda as your uh, as your sort of uh, uh, Valiant protagonist is kind of gutsy, you know, to to have the scenes following around the person who is famous for listening. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, on the one hand, it obviously works in the sense that it's hard. It's far from surprising that Varda is the one that the other Valar come to, right. Um, that if mm-hmm. there is uncertainty and discontent and disagreement among the Valar, Varda is going to hear about it. Of course, she's going to hear about it. Hearing about it is what Varda does. Right. Um, so I kind of like that, but you're right that it makes her, it makes her an awkward protagonist because she 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 doesn't she's, she doesn't act as much, um, yeah. And which we
2: yeah. which we wound up using as a plot point, which you know, like that was that eventually became like, well, what, well, what does she do? Well, that's that's the whole point.
1: That's the question. Yeah, yeah. what does right. she do? What is she gonna do? Um, yeah, so I mean, I, I do think, I, I did agree in the end that you, I mean, I I just kind of wanted to acknowledge the, the concern that you had for that. And, and But frankly, I think I like it even if only for the reason that we do want to, since we are going to be invoking Varda, Varda is going to be um, one of the Valar who should stay most firmly on our radar screen as we move forward. I liked mm-hmm. having her... Uh, uh there so that we can be really thinking about her and thinking about her relationship with the elves. All right. Dashing along to episode three, episode three, of course, is the great debate when the, when the ambassadors return and everybody starts fighting and we have the, the, the discussion and the, the Avari and ale storming out in wrath and the Avari choosing to stay. And, um, Uh, so yeah. So conflict breaks out now all over the place. This is conflict with which I have no problems at all, of course. Um, and also notably, this is where we began. We begin to see the, um, uh, the bad guy side This is where we get the first Ang band scene, right? With Sauron. Yes. And, uh, uh, and then of course we get the decisions, uh, some to stay and some to go at the end of the episode. Um, I, um, let me just mention the Angband stuff. I liked the interjection of Angband stuff. I thought that was really, I I thought that worked really well. Um, I love the idea of following the Dark Rider back to Angband, right? Um, and kind of seeing behind the scenes there. Um, one point I wanted to make though about Sauron, um, uh, the, one of the things you guys said in the outline was like, why, uh, um, you know, why? Why destroy something when you can use it instead seems to be sort of his general attitude. The main thing that I would caution... Remember, Sauron is a very recent convert to evil. He's not been evil very long and clearly still doesn't yet think of what he does as evil. Um, And in fact, one of the things that I think is going to be really interesting... One of the things that I think that we can set up in this season and even continue perhaps in the next season is that there's uh, just as we were talking in the later part of the season about sort of the, where in the continuum Morgoth himself is right. And that shift from Melkor to Morgoth, um, the significance of the choice to do the darkening of Valinor and how he has crossed, he has crossed a bridge at that point. Um, and is now different and showing the contrast between somebody who is merely, um, you know, uh, uh Not in agreement with the other Valar, right? Which is where Sauron is. Um, Willing to embrace alternative methods, right? Um, Which is kind of what his defection was all about back in season one. You know, his defection was not about like, you know, really when it comes to it, I prefer evil to good. That's not what was the issue, right? The issue was what works. And And he likes Morgoth's approach right you know he admires Morgoth's strength and thinks like this is this is the way to get stuff done right all that dithering over there in Valinor is totally pointless Morgoth has got the you know he, he knows the way of it so basically thinking about his relationship with the elves I'm thinking he's not his first approach Is the question of like should I destroy them or not shouldn't even you know, that's not even on his radar screen right he's not mm-hmm. trying to destroy anything he's not setting out to be the destructor um, because, you know, to do that would be, you know, it would be essentially embracing evil or becoming so thoroughly corrupt yourself that you can't even tell anymore, but he's not there yet. So is isn't there yet. Mm. He's, he's still constru- He's, he's a builder, right? He's a builder. He's a shaker. It's, he, he is. I mean, he's a builder in that he's one of the people of outlay. Right, and he believes he is building again. It's, his defection to Morgoth is just about like finding superior means, like that is more effective means to achieve the ends. He would not view his ends as having changed necessarily between season one and season two. So my thought is he's got to be working on, and I use this word very carefully, conversion. Basically, he's 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 wanting to talk the elves around. Um, yes. Uh, so that should be his goal. So, it, uh, um, uh. And this will come up again later on, but, but yeah, so trying to kind of articulate a little bit more the, uh, you know, so maybe Gothmog sort of assumes, because Gothmog would be all about the violence, right? You know, Gothmog would just be like, hey, you know, we can get, and I love, this comes in later on, though, but I love the elf hunt, like Balrog's on an elf hunt in the woods. Um, Yes. That's awesome. Like the elves just sort of treat them as, as like game, essentially. Um, Yeah. That's perfect. I I think that's just absolutely perfect. Um, but, you know, sort of, so, sort of showing Sauron's attitude in contrast to Gothmog's, I think is, uh, uh, is, is a really, cause of course Gothmog has already also, like the, when the Balrogs do their thing with the lamps, they've already had their moment, right? They, they've already crossed yeah. their bridge. Sauron has crossed an important bridge, but it's not the same, right? I mean, he hasn't been, the Balrogs have been changed, right? I mean, they are, um. Uh, uh, they are they irrevocably are irrevocably different. Yeah, they've they've already cr- They're already they've already moved from Melkor to Morgoth, right? Following that same parallel that we were talking about at the end of season two, um, yes. they're already in Morgoth's stage. Sauron is not in Morgoth's stage yet. Um,
2: yeah, I I yeah. think that this was written um, this was written pretty early on, and before there was um, really an idea of. Of who Myron was and where he was in his plot arc. Um, However, there's one thing that I I would say that, like, right now, he's kind of like the sane man in the asylum in a way. Right. And he's got to kind of get all these people to think that he's just as crazy as they are almost (laughs) because he's not the one in charge.
1: Right. Right.
2: So right. his you know, so he has to constantly be selling this idea that nope, yeah, I'm on board. He's waiting for Melkor to come back and kind of order this all out, but in the meantime, he has to try to continue with his ends and have the freedom to do so.
1: Yeah. It so whenever he's
2: talking key. to anybody, including Thoringwithel, he yeah. has to he has to be putting on that face.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's it, it's uh, it, obviously it falls to Myron right to uh, uh, to keep Morgoth's enlightened vision alive, right. Melkor's enlightened vision alive. Right? I mean that's what he converted to. Right? Was the the the, the more enlightened enlightened vision of of, of Melkor and achieving uh, their ends? And then it looks like everything is just going to hell, right? When right. Uh, uh, when because I mean Gothmog doesn't get it, right? Gothmog is just like you know. He just wants to see the world burn, right? Exactly. He's he's merely ruled by force. He's all the strength, but you know none of the, none, none of the brains, none of the long term planning at all. So yeah, to Sauron, it's got to look like look, Morgoth had a vision, right? But now he's gone. Gothmog is in charge, which is a freaking disaster because he has no vision at all um, and right. doesn't get the big picture. I get the big picture. But I'm, but I have, I don't have the power just to make it happen. So, um, so yeah, he's like the one who's struggling for, you know, uh, struggling for enlightenment basically. Um, and, uh, uh yeah. So clearly what he's trying to do is recruit the elves ultimately. Yes. Um, which means we have to explain why does he abduct them in the first place? Hmm. And I think the answer to that is the answer given in the text. Right. Why does he take the form of a dark rider who, kidnapping folks? Um, which, you know, where you think like a more polite approach might have worked perhaps better. Well, he's got to be thinking his first thought has got to be Orme's going to show up, right? right? And I need to make sure when Orme shows up they don't listen to them. Because, you know, he's, he's, he, he, he's, he's going to want to be guard, guarding against that. But, mm-hmm. uh, but still, it does seem like an odd we do have to reconcile his tactical choice of abduction, right? But again, that kind of fits with the whole strength thing, right? Um, you know, you want uh, you want these people to be on your side. How do you get it done? You don't get it done by, like, approaching them and being like, hi, I'm your friend. Can we talk about this? That's the Namby Pamby Valar way, right? Um, no, like, strength, right? That's what Melkor is about. The assertion of strength. One of the things, anyway, Melkor is about. The assertion of strength and taking what you want—that's um, the difference in means, right? That he has embraced. So that's what he does. Um,
2: right. And well, that's so. Like what I'm saying is that the the line, you know, why destroy what, what you can cultivate right. is—that's the line he's using with Thuring without. He's yeah, he's because yeah. he's kind of playing everybody. He including her, which is. Far more like playing Gothmog can't be that difficult, right? He's not that smart. Whereas playing Thuringwethel, who is a, who is arguably almost as smart as Sauron is, right. at least in the depiction that we're writing here, that takes a lot more finesse.
1: Right, right, right. Um, now, is Thuringwethel evil, or is she? Is she? That is, where is she uh, compared to Sauron? I would think she'd be in a similar place to him that she would be his ally in this sense as well that he shares the vision with Thur and Gwethil and she with him um she strikes
2: me on the because we've used this before the the uh the D&D uh uh why can't I think alignment scale she yeah. strikes me as true neutral at true this neutral.
1: point okay Yes. Okay. Which
2: is, if you if you've ever GM'd, true yes. neutral is the worst Almost possible. Almost impossible.
1: Absolutely. Yes. 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 H- how do you, how how do you maintain true neutral while in fact doing anything? Yes. Yes. Exactly. Right.
2: So okay. that so that means that she doesn't necessarily have a moral center, um, which again makes her difficult to manipulate, because uh, that's all you know. What, what mm-hmm. you do as a, as a dungeon master is you're manipulating your players the whole time. <laughs>
1: right, right, <laughs> right. Yeah, and, it is uh, tricky. It is tricky. Um, Let's come back to Throne Gwetho for a second. Dragluin is easy, right? Dragluin, I know we're going to get werewolves later on, and I, I like that. Um, with Dragluin, um, what I would think with him, he would be tortured from the beginning, right? Like the whole werewolf experiment doesn't turn out like Sauron intended, you know, like Myron intends. Um, yes. You know, he's trying to make, you know, strong, powerful allies, but they themselves turn out to be, you know, in the end, they're tormented spirits bound within werewolves. And like, he did, he, it's like he was setting out to torment them. He wasn't tormenting them for his own amusement, but the process of becoming werewolves turns out to be a tormenting process. Um, and Drowgluin is, uh, you know, scarred by that. Yet Marie says he's in constant pain. Yes, yes. Even if not physical pain, you know, he's in like mental and spiritual pain. You know, so he is. Drowgluin is violent because he's broken. Um, he's messed right. up, and and Myron messed him up. Even though, again, I don't think that was what he was setting out to do. But so Drowgluin being kind of darker uh, because. Himself broken, is is kind of that. That seems a little clearer to me. Uh, Thuringwetho, I would want to be more like Sauron to be to be the person that he can talk to. You know, she's yes. his sounding board. She's the one that. Um, so, like, basically, the stuff about Sauron's real point of view can emerge in conversation with Um Maybe she doesn't well, have his drive. Maybe she doesn't have his overall vision. Maybe she like she just, just doesn't care as much about achieving the vision, right? So she doesn't have that kind of leadership drive that he has.
2: Well, she's she's probably been with Melkor since the destruction of the Lamps. Right. Um, since the split at Almoran. So she's going to be a lot closer to, the, to Melkor's, like, real point of view than right. Sauron is at this point. Right. So it, I would say that she's probably a little bit further along than he is, but... As far as, as far as evil.
1: Right, right, right. That makes more sense. That makes more sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Karita suggests that she's uh, sort of more centered on survival rather than, you know, right. vision in the big picture like Myron. That makes sense to me, Karita. Um, uh, now, to Vildo, though. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is jumping ahead. It's the next yeah. episode. It's episode four where we get Tavildo the torturer, right? Who, 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 who tortures elves for fun. That fits for me. I mean, he's a cat, right? So he's gotta be evil, but, um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, that's, that's, I'm sorry. I didn't write it. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to fit him into, uh, into the, into the band, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the picture. <clears throat> how is he, how and why is he an ally to, uh, to Myron? Does Myron take him as an ally almost unwillingly? I mean, is he like a necessary evil from, you know, from Myron's perspective? Um,
2: yeah, I would say so. He needs all the help he can get. He's and,
1: he's like an independent spirit, so he's 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 not he's not he he doesn't play well with others, right? Because so, he's a cat again, so he he doesn't he doesn't join with the Balrogs, and he won't be bossed around by the Balrogs. He you know he refuses to be bossed around because again, cat. But he um, so he's willing to kind of side with Myron, but he, he really he is more of a Balrog-ish perspective.
2: Yeah. 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 Well, also, again, to 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 even though he he possibly liked the Balrogs, just kind of wants to see the world burn. He might feel like the Bal. He might also feel that the Balrogs lack subtlety; that they Mm -hmm. like they're not really getting the most out of (laughs) out of this.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Because of course, again, his his idea of fun is not. Like the kind of hunting that uh, that the Balrogs do, anyway. Like he, he he's not into hack and slash. That's not what he does. Um. Yeah, yeah. What's Tavildo's backstory? Why is he so messed up? What is he? Where does he come from? Now, of course, we don't know the answer to these questions. You know, Tavildo gets dropped um uh from the mythology and uh and there is no explanation of this other than the vague impression that cats are intrinsically evil um but uh <laughs> yeah <laughs> brian just says he's a cat right that's yeah, exactly that's kind of that's kind of the thing um but again i feel like that needs explanation within the mythology as we're constructing it
2: well, what we could say, we could say that Tavildo was Melkor's first, first like uh, Myar beast amalgam experiment. Hmm.
3: hmm.
2: Now, granted, you know, Drogluin is that as well now, right? But. This is this is something that Melkor did at the height of his power before he you know so it's it's not quite this it's not as ugly as as at Right, the so Draugluin
1: could be more messed up, could right. be more physically and sort of or mentally messed up because Sauron his so that Draugluin could be an attempt to imitate Tovildo essentially.
2: Right. Yes.
1: And it's an imperfect imitation, and thus Draugluin is messed up, and thus yes. evil. Whereas vildo is more designedly because what um, what Melkor wanted when he made Tevildo was mm. this kind of mercilessness. Right. And
2: it's possible that Tevildo was made with this particular activity in mind.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's I I I'd, I'd, I'd never thought of that. I was um, I mean, I was always picturing because of course the parallel from the beginning in the Book of Lost Tales is between Tevildo and Huon, right? So I was thinking of Tevildo in Huonish terms, meaning that he would originally have been a spirit following one of the, you know, he would have been he, he would be a, you know, a Maiar who was following one of the Valar. So I was kind of thinking in terms of like so which Valar originally should he have been following? Is he originally one of Melkor's followers who fell with him in the music or is he somebody else who defected? Um, but if he's not, you know, if he is that kind of a Experiment, as Carita says, the experiment that worked too well. Um, uh, then um, uh, that does simplify that question. Then, and it does establish the idea of Myron kind of finding his p- his place politically in Angmar. Right? He's uh, he's opposing the Balrogs, though, in secret. Uh, not openly. He's made an an, an uneasy ally of Tivildo, but that doesn't always work out really well, uh and there's some tension there. Um he has a more firm ally in Thúringwethil, but she's not so committed to the cause as he is. Um he That's interesting because Draft we Dolo. have
2: her we have her cave in in episode thirteen, um, to kind of, and this is obviously jumping ahead quite a bit, yeah. But we have a scene with them in episode thirteen where, um, and I forget exactly what the context is, but the Balrogs are trying to give get information out of Myron, and he's not giving it up. When they turn it, turn it loose on Thurgwithal, she immediately, immediately spills everything. She's got no. <laughs> Yeah, I There's like no that. way that she's going to risk her life.
1: Yeah, because she's, she's not about the cause. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I like that. I like that. Um, okay, okay. Um, cool. All right, well, I'd, I console myself for that long digression in that that addresses several episodes, so uh, that's good. But yeah. let's go back to the great debate.
0: So, tech <laughs> technically done more than two. That's your argument. That's
1: my argument. I've technically done more than two. In <laughs> fact, when we finish episode three, I will technically have done more than three. So that's so. There we are. Yeah. Um. We're we're doing we're doing great. Um. uh Okay. So, what's the purpose of Lenway's dream? So Lenway has a dream. I mean, I get that it's like. What I I was getting from that was the general, like, one possible impulse to resolve the question of should we go or should we not is should we seek to interpret, interpret signs and portents to, to, you know, to tell us, you know, is there some kind of external thing that we should rely upon to see what is it, what is it that we should do in some sense of should. Right. And but. The dream is interpreted in contradictory ways. And so therefore, this suggests that, you know, there is the the result of that is that no, there is no external, you know, marker that we need to be looking for. We just have to make we just have to, you know, make our own decision up about this. Is that is that where you guys were kind of going with the dream sequence? Yes,
2: because we we don't want to take we don't necessarily want to take away the the agency of the elves in this case. Right. Where every decision that they make is is just being um, determined by what the Valar are doing or saying. Right. Um,
1: um,
2: but the 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 mix up of interpretation is like. It, it, that of course, that's going to happen. <laughs> I yes. mean, if you if you have an oracular vision, clearly, people are going to misinterpret it.
1: Right. Now, um, is it oracular? Like, is he actually sent the dream, and what does the dream really mean? So something they're misunderstanding it.
2: Well, the the I believe in the original discussion that we've had with you guys where you had talked about wanting almost sending sending them dreams as a way of of subverting what the um right what <laughs> yes. the other valor are doing yes um and that this is that essentially okay. but lenway is is getting it wrong
1: right um okay as i recall the issue of lenway receiving a dream from ulmo who is kind of working behind the backs of the rest of the Valar. Um, As I recall, because I actually have a memory of that, which is unusual, um, is that we were trying to answer the question. We wanted some of the elves to be arguing. It is our purpose to remain in middle earth
3: Mm
1: -hmm. and to be a blessing to middle earth. And we were trying to answer the question, where do they get that idea from? Why do they even think that? I mean, yes, it's very natural for them to say, I like it here. I don't want to leave. Right. They don't need Mm -hmm. any kind of revelation to have that. But if there is any kind of a larger uh, issue, right, I mean, if there's any kind of um, uh, more grandiose, it is our purpose to remain. It is wrong. It would be wrong for us to go, which I think has to be on the table for at least some of them.
0: Yeah, um, that
2: I think is Nerwin's interpretation that we mentioned in the outline. Right. I don't think it case, says that, what they, that is, but yeah. Right. They,
1: they have to get that from somewhere. I mean, unless we just say they're vaguely born with a general sense of this, but I, that would make it far too general, I think, to really fit what we're wanting to accomplish there. So, um, so yeah, I, uh, um, I'm not sure... Um. Here was one thought. One thought was, why don't we save that? Well, okay. Because okay. I was torn with two things, and here I'm glancing ahead at episode four. Mm-hmm. Um. When Lenway decides to stay. With Treebeard and the ants. He... He is moved by the conviction that this is their purpose. Um, yes. We could make... I could see a couple options of how we draw the lines in Episode 3. Right? On the one hand, we could make this... Essentially into, because really, I mean, if you boil it down, we're thinking about three different polls or four different polls, really, of the debate about whether we go or whether we stay. That is, there's the subset who says, like, basically, there are two reasons to go and two reasons to stay. There are the people who say, we want to stay because we like it here. And that's what we want to do. There are people who stay because we think it is the right thing for us to do to stay. It's Mm -hmm. not about our desires. It's about what's right. And we believe that staying is what's right. There are those who say, I want to go because it sounds cool. Right. And again, it's Mm -hmm. not about whether it's right or wrong. It's about what I want. And there are those who are going because they think it's the right thing to do. And it doesn't matter what they want. They believe that they're called to go and should go. Do we need all four of those groups represented in, in the conflict? i could see I, for instance having the other having those be two separate questions the we want to go and we want to stay and the it is right for us to stay and it, or it is right for us to go for those to be dealt with separately even in separate episodes
2: do you, do you not think that that don't you think that would come out during people's arguments like then because they're not just saying well i think we should go well i think we should stay well i think we should go well i think we should stay they they have to be articulating their positions and it agree like it's gonna i feel like that would definitely come out when they're doing that
1: i can't see any way to avoid the i think it's right for us to go position yeah that has to come
2: out. well Um, that's going to be the vanyard position
1: exactly the vanyard position right because of the vanyard that has to come out but the converse i am not sure does because here's what i'm thinking what if the debate is between people who, on the one side, there are those, like the Vanyar, who believe, who want to go in large part because they believe it is the right thing to do. And there are others who just want to go because they're curious and it sounds cool. Mm-hmm. And on the other side are just people who don't want to go. But we mm-hmm. don't have to introduce that larger sort of more ontological question among them. They can just be like, no, we don't want to." And then the distinction we introduce in episode four, when Lenway chooses to stay, see, this would make Lenway's choice to stay a fundamentally different kind of choice than the choice Mm -hmm. that the Avari make. Um, When he says, no, I'm going to actually, I'm, I'm, I'm stopping. I'm not going any further than this. And so, like, well, why did you leave? If you, you know, and, and what he could say is, no, it's not that I just, it's not that I think the same way the Avari did. Like I get your, I, I get your desire to go to Valinor and I respect that. And that's fine for you. But what I see now is we have a calling here and we have Mm. a purpose here. Um, And that is what I, and, and, and and for that to be different for, you know, so if that view is not one that's voiced by the Avari and the Mm. Avari are more focused on essentially negative arguments that they're the unwilling, right? We don't want to go. We think this is a bad idea to go rather mm-hmm. than we believe it is the destiny of elves to remain.
2: Okay. I mean, I, I, I'm okay with that. I just wanted to kind of remind you that you you had wanted to avoid, <laughs> avoid the Avari being viewed in a purely... as, as Yes, just obstructionist necessary. and pointless, yes. Right. Yeah. That's, uh, that's all.
1: Exactly. So what you're saying is like what I'm saying totally contradicts what I said before. Yes. And I agree. I don't want the Avari to just I mean, it has to be handled carefully so they don't look like they're just folding their arms and sticking out their lower jaws and saying, well, we don't want to and you can't make us. We don't want to make them sound childish. Their concerns need to sound really legitimate. And indeed, they are legitimate concerns. Mm -hmm.
2: Um, Well, I mean, there's a few things. There's one, you know, it's are you nuts? Like <laughs> this is, that's that's the craziest thing I've ever heard of. It's really scary out there. Um, you know, there's right. Ail's point of right. view, which is these people are clearly just want us as pets or servants right. or something it, worse. Like
1: the, the, the sort of like proto fallen Feanorian perspective, right? And just, then yes,
2: right. And then there's the the you know the the Avari Noldorin perspective of. But I'm in the middle of building a bridge it's going to be at <laughs> least another 50 years
1: right 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 I'm doing stuff here I'm in the middle of stuff right right um, yeah and so I think and in that there can be the um, there can be the sense of I mean, one of the things that emerge, especially, emerges especially from that later position is the general idea of like here is where we are, right? We're doing stuff here. Stuff is happening sure. here and we want to keep right. doing it. We want to stay here and we want to keep doing these things. It's not quite as grandiose as like I have received a vision and we have a calling to be here, right? Yeah. I believe that there is some kind of destiny, some kind of task that we must perform. It's not that grand, right? But it still gives a sense of we, we belong here. I think that's okay. I think it's okay for the Avari to say that, to say we mm. belong here. What yeah. I would want to emphasize with Lenway is that sense of purpose, right? That, yeah. like, we have a job. like we have a... Because they do. The Firstborn have a job. Like, yeah. Iluvatar designed them for a purpose. And the reason, that, uh, in my reading, the reason that the Silmarillion suggests that it was wrong of the Valar to bring the elves over to Valinor is that it undermines the purpose for which the, the elves were placed in Middle-earth in the first place. And so that sense, so I think this is why I'm wanting to separate that out because I want to make sure to, I don't want that just to get tangled up with the, we're afraid to go. We don't trust the Valar. We like it here. Like those, those are other, obviously those are all things that are going to be on the mind of the various avari. Right. And I don't want the big, that bigger question of like, what is the purpose of elves in the first place? Like what is their destiny? Um, What are they called to do? I don't want that just to get kind of lost in the shuffle there. You see what I mean? Um, So that's why I'm thinking we save that for episode four. And again, it makes Lenway's separation feel completely different. He's not just another Avari. You know, he's not just the still pretty unwilling. You know, he is not unwilling. Um, at all. In fact, unwillingness is exactly what Lenway does not show. What he shows is willingness, but it's just willingness for a different purpose, not an unwillingness to follow a call, but a, the choice to follow a different call. And that's where I would want to distinguish Lenway from the other avari and have and have their arguments be negative. And again, I don't I'm not trying to insult them and I'm not saying we need to simplify them and to make them look silly. But just negative in the sense of they are they are, you know they're focusing on what they don't want, um, primarily as well as the fact that they do love where they are. <clears throat> um, you know, I, again, I I I don't want to lose that positive entirely, but um, but their arguments would be mostly would be mostly negative.
0: So, are you, do you saying know, to do you know what else? Of oh, uh, sorry, man, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. You're fine. I was just going to say, you know what else? The you know what other sort of oppor- or kind of opportunity this opens up? Maybe the whole unwilling thing is like could also be partially propaganda from the from the the elves who went, like or or just like a snobbish attitude. Like right. m- maybe indeed large numbers of the of the Moraquendi and Teleri aren't aren't in fact like quote unquote unwilling. They're just perceived as unwilling by the. Um, Willing. By uh, The the elves who went, yeah, by the willing, but the elves who went and by the Valar, like maybe mm-hmm. it's a, maybe it's sort of a negative reaction by the Valar, mm-hmm. um, at least mm-hmm. the ones who wanted the elves to come.
1: Yes. I mean, I don't think it, it wouldn't be hard for us to depict, I mean, there would be wisdom in the argument that the Avari make, right? I mean, it's not, again, we don't have to just make them look like they're stubborn children who refuse to listen. Um, their concerns are valid concerns. It's sensible. What the, what, the, uh, what, the, what the Eldar are doing is a risk. I mean, they're rolling the dice. And it's perfectly sensible for them to say, you don't know. Now, like, Ale's a little over the top, but nevertheless, the objections that he makes, like, what's the point? Why do they, you know, have you, have you asked what they want with us? You know, like I want, and and I I love that, you know, that, that line that you guys were talking about, about like him not wanting to be their pet. I would also, uh, suggest that we throw out the word thrall here so Mm -hmm. that when Feanor brings up the word thrall, it sounds familiar.
2: Yes. Um,
1: and obviously his fears are more extreme, right? Um,
2: but it's fears that the Noldor are going to share in a few episodes. So. Exactly.
1: Exactly. So putting that on the table is, is I mean, so he's wrong. Aeol's wrong, as the Noldor will be wrong. Um, but that's going to be a really fun thing, right? Where on the one hand, when Aeol says it at first, we, the viewers, who are fresh still in episode three, fresh from season one, are going to be like, oh, that's horrible. What, a, what an idiot, right? What a jerk that guy is think that about mm-hmm. the Valar. And then by the time if we do our jobs right, by the time we get to the Noldor saying that at the end of episode two, it's, or at the end of season two, it sounds like plausible. Eerily disturbingly plausible. <laughs> because you
2: know. the the Valar, despite their best intentions, are kind of almost keeping the the, the elves. I, I'm keeping like you would have, like not you know, they're not like uh, dictating to them, or Well, they are in a way. Right. Um, but they are kept in yes. a manner of
1: speaking. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, uh, Marie brings up the philological question since elves, of course, don't have slaves, where would they get the word thrall from? Marie, he would coin it. Right. I mean, uh, uh, Ale would be coining the word in that moment. And of course, uh, philologically speaking, it probably would like the literal meaning of the word that he uses would probably be something like, you know, the kept ones or uh, mm-hmm. something like that. You know, the, the you know t- taking um, applying to people, you know, a, uh, a probably a verbal construction, which was only ever before applied to inanimate objects. You know, and Aeol is the first one to apply that, you know, to, to bring up this issue of the, you know, to conceive of, um, that, 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 that word being applied to, uh, um, you know, being apl- or adapted to, uh, to people. We can totally make that work philologically if we want to. Um, yeah. Anyway, so again, I, I, am absolutely not arguing for flattening out the Avari argument and making it simplistic and silly, um, but the, the, that sense of higher calling I would want to save for Lenway because that sort of anticipates one of the main things that I wanted to say about episode four. I wanted a little more of that with Lenway um, because it's and, and, and this can reflect the fact that that the fact that we spread that out over two episodes, I think, actually can integrate with the fr- with the frame really well. Right. Because what it what it shows is a kind of a refining of the question. Um, Because both of those questions are questions, like when Arwen is confronting the idea of what what is the proper destiny of elves, both of those two questions are questions that she should be considering, but she won't necessarily be considering them both at the the same time um, or both initially. That is the question of what do I want? Do I want to stay or do I want to go? And what's right? Should I stay or should I go? Um, and then, of course, thinking about how those two things, two questions interact. So if we are essentially have in the frame Arwen considering the first question, what do I want or what does her friend want um, in the in the in the frame of of uh, of episode three and um, and then having the especially since uh, it looked like you guys were moving towards something of a of a of a resolution of the tension between Arwen, like Arwen and her friend fighting about it in the frame, and Arwen arguing with her friend about it, and she can come to some kind of a resolution about Basically, sort of the question that she can come to peace with is like, okay, well, like, people want different things. Why why should I try to like, force this on her, right? You know, I mean, she's made her choice about what she wants, but this could only then lead Arwen to the bigger question, really, the more difficult question. Okay, but Aside from our desires, right? Aside from the question of what do people want, what should we do? What's right? What is the destiny of elves? And that's a, a, f- a later question, and a further question, and a deeper question. So I kind of like saving that. That's why I like saving that for the next episode.
2: Okay. Do you want to have the dream itself in this episode, or do you want to have the dream afterwards i mean i feel like having it here and having him misinterpret it and then come to a better understanding of it later seems better but
1: yeah that could work i mean especially since if we if he has to have the dream also and interpret it and have it's it 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 loads a lot into episode four especially since you know the lenway plot is only one of a couple different plots that are happening in that episode so it's already kind of full he's got he's got his hands full with treebeard in episode four you know um
2: also, if uh, the online etymology dictionary is to be believed, the word thrall originally comes from a proto-Germanic word that meant runner, so working that <laughs> in, not too difficult.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, there you are. There you are. Uh, yeah, so, uh, okay. He can have it. He can have it. Um, but maybe he doesn't even tell anybody about it. Or I don't know, Or maybe it comes up in private. Maybe it's not a subject of public debate.
3: Mm.
2: Um, or he could would... just have it and then say something to, during the debate to the effect of, well, you know, it's our purpose and, and have, the, have the dream be about purpose and whatnot. Right. And, and...
1: right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right.
2: Shall we get into episode four so that you'll have technically left episode three?
1: Hey, yeah, let's do that because we've, I've already done most of what I want. Oh, just a brief note. Um, I love Muriel's family staying behind. The idea that mm-hmm. Muriel, when she goes to Valinor, go, and she has her husband, but she's lost her family. So the idea of Muriel as kind of herself abandoned, and the way that that gets echoed in Fanor's abandonment, I think can resonate in lots of really, uh, in lots of really cool ways. So I, th- I thought that was a, I, I thought that was a, a brilliant touch. And I would just say also in passing, I was not a huge fan of Nerwin's kind of convoluted. Uh, first of all, who's Nerwin again?
2: Nerwin is a. It, she's an Avari. She's a Teleri Avari.
1: Right. Teleri Avari. Right. Okay. She's like the female spokesperson for the Avari that we were talking about. Right. Yeah. Yes.
2: Right. She, um, she would have been the, um, the Arwen
1: mentor. The if Arwen that's... mentor fig- fig- figure if we had oh. st- stuck with the mentor thing. Right. Right. Okay. Alright, got it. Um I thought that her kind of like her convoluted um Okay, so she's a close she's one of Elway's in her circle, Marie says. Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. So it's like so in the beginning it should be like, you know, Elway hanging out with Olway and Kierdan and uh uh and um you know, Mablung and uh and Celeborn and Nurwin should be one of the should be one of the yes. posse there. Though of course they don't all have to get named, obviously. Okay. All right. All right. Fine. Um, wasn't a huge fan of Nerwin, like, setting out to make one argument and talking herself into the other side? Like, not that that's not uh, psychologically verisimilitudinous, because it certainly is. But, um, I mean, goodness knows I've done that myself many times on this show, live on the air many times. But, um, but I, I, uh, I wasn't, as a, as a kind of a culmination of the episode, it seemed a little bit odd. But anyway, I don't want. I don't. I don't want to. I don't. I just want to kind of note that in passing. But let's move on to episode four. Um, um, I love Lenway and Treebeard. Like the coming back to that episode, I was like, that was just, that's just brilliant. I just, I so love the connection of the uh, the the Green Elves' choice or the soon to be green elves the proto green the proto green yeah. elves uh with uh uh with uh, with the ants. that's just there's so many ways in which that is so perfect that i just can't stop loving it um but um uh yeah so i uh, like that um uh Again, if we interject, uh, uh, again, again, the the two main things that I wanted to say about this episode we've already talked about. That is, uh, this is where Tevildo the Torturer comes in, and so I, I wanted to kind of address that, and we already have. Um, uh, Lenway uh, and why Lenway stays, and I wanted to, to come back and in, in, in interject about the purpose, and we've done that. Um, though we didn't. What's his dream? What what is he? What does he actually dream?
2: Uh, <laughs> that's a good question um
1: before you the have other thought? dreams that we've depicted that you, you guys have depicted in the outlines have tended mm-hmm. to be imagistic rather than allegorical dreams yes they're usually not like you dream of a thing which you then symbolically interpret right but rather snatches yeah. of imagery which you know, will make sense later on. Like I really liked, for instance, and look at me glancing ahead again, because I'm pretending as if I'm covering more than we are. Um, the dreams of all way in right? Mm-hmm. The dream of the, the dream of the swans and the dream of, of Vingalot. I really liked that. Um, mm-hmm. So is it going to be that kind of dream? Um, is it going to be the, the, um,
2: I would think that that kind of dream would be easier to misinterpret, but it also would be more difficult to convey a sense of purpose is the problem.
1: Yeah. And and that's what I think it's because we don't need, we don't need a, a misinterpretation or even a public misinterpretation. He can maybe perhaps just not fully understand it. I don't even think he needs to talk about it, his dream at the conference. I mean, in fact, maybe he shouldn't talk about it. Maybe we should show his dream and then show him looking, like, concerned, right? He's troubled at the debate. He just, he goes with Elway, right? And follows him and sides with him, but he's troubled. And it's his dream that he's troubled because he doesn't understand his dream, right? He, 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 he feels like he's being told something, but he doesn't yet get it. And it's only in episode four that he gets it. And when he gets it, he makes his choice and decides to stay. So I actually kind of think it'd be better if he doesn't talk about it. It doesn't need to be publicly misinterpreted, I think. Just not yet understood. Which could means he, it could be a thing that will come clear both to him and to the viewers in in episode four.
2: Could he be cultivating a tree? Could he be dreaming about himself cultivating a tree?
1: Right. You got to think trees have to figure, right? Yeah. In, in this, I mean, it's got to be a it's got to be an interstream in some sense that he's having.
2: Yeah. And maybe have it like have it kind of like change shift into like a whole forest of trees or something like that. Like, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a way to convey purpose through that. Like this is, this is your purpose to cultivate middle earth in a way.
1: Yeah. Maybe. Maybe he just has a dream of a tree talking. Like he's just a dream of a talking tree, which he doesn't understand. You know, he's like, trees don't talk maybe his first impulse and again we don't have to he doesn't have to say this all on screen but maybe Uh lenway's own first impulse is to interpret allegorically right Mm -hmm. he has a dream of a talking tree and he's like what does the talking tree symbolize right but that is the tree actually
2: saying words because then what is it what is it telling him i don't know (laughs) like that's the that's a problem like having i mean you could have uh, like and, and the tree doesn't look alive in any way. You, you just have a tree, and there's like a voice coming out of the tree, but it's, it's muffled, and he can't understand it. He's asking, he keeps asking, what are you saying? What are you saying?
1: Right. Well, oh, no, this is easy. The tree talks to him, and uh-huh. he understands it, but he doesn't remember okay. when he wakes what it said. Okay. It's a dream. We can always go on the I don't remember business, right? But all he remembers, but- you know, he, he, when he awakes – what he knows he has this dream which affects him profoundly and it's just saying we just don't
2: see the dream. dream he's just we don't see the dream okay it makes all it right. easier so if it's... we
1: don't see the dream
2: right that's true
1: if he just because and if all the dream is is this one single you know it's like i i i, I dreamed that a tree spoke to me mm-hmm. and he and like his interlocutor says what did the tree say and he's like i don't remember but it spoke and I don't know what it means.
2: And there's something that I have to, that we have to do or something right. like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. But you know, supposed, he just has the... There's something we're supposed to do.
1: Yeah, yeah. He just he has the sense, like, this is really important. Like, this is a... Um, and then when he meets Treebeard, then he understands. Like, yeah. that he can, you know... So when, when the, you know, they're like, oh, wait, I can teach the trees to speak. Um, yes. That's when then he connects it to, right, this is my job. This is my purpose. I've got a... I've just, uh, you know yeah yeah I just saw a job opening posted and I want it um, <laughs> good yeah love it um, the last and uh, most important question of episode 4 and we'll probably have to end after this is um, uh, uh, Tom Bombadil's cameo is supposed to come in this episode which I with which I agree geographically it needs to um, so uh, uh, we need more details on this crucial subject um, what does Tom Bombadil do Who's going to meet him exactly? I don't even
2: remember Elway? that.
1: Is it in Elway's Is Elway traveling? Does that happen? Is are, are are we yet in the point of Elway uh Elway traveling? Where's the Well, I mean,
2: in episode 4, yeah. There's there's definitely there's definitely travel. Oh, yeah, well cuz we get
1: to, we actually get to Nan, Nan Elmoth in this, right? He actually yeah. he actually meets yeah. uh, meets Million. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Right.
2: Okay. Um, Do we want to have L.A. meeting two super powerful Maiar in the same episode? In
1: different forests? Yeah, probably not. Right. Yeah. Um,
2: Yeah. I mean, I I feel like if anybody, Finway or... It's a little bit
1: funny having those two things happen in the same episode, you have to admit. Yeah. By the way, are we casting for Tom Bombadil, or did we already cast him?
2: I don't think there is a... I don't think he has been cast. I don't think it's even any of the radar. Yeah. He
1: was in season one. we totally need somebody to be Tom bombadil. What an important I don't
3: know. I mean, role
2: I'm in scripts not casting
1: yeah yeah <laughs> okay sorry um okay right pass so on that one. right Marie says all way, it's gotta be all way. um okay. okay, that makes sense agreed now, it's a cameo right we don't we don't we don't we don't need or want a whole scene, but what do we uh
2: well, you could just have him do do? like dance through singing and always just watch him go by with a puzzled (laughs) expression on his face that's the easiest way to do it but
1: yeah 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 Um, um and just
2: not explain it for another 20 years
1: right exactly exactly but of course thematically though we wouldn't explain this or spend time in it i mean it works right I mean, the question of, like, my purpose is to, to, to remain here in this place. Well, like, Tom Bombadil's all about that, right? So having him, having him come in as Lenway is deciding to put down roots and say, this is where I belong, certainly fits thematically. Even though, again, as I say, we wouldn't explain that explicitly, really. Um, mm. So, yeah, th- they're going to see him. I mean, he's got to be, he's got to be, like, dancing along and singing because that's what he does, right? So, I mean, obviously there's there's, no, uh, there's really nothing else that they could catch him doing. Um, question. When does Tom Bombadil marry Goldberry? When do we want Tom Bombadil to meet? Since we have a Tom Bombadil, we're going to have to have a Tom Bombadil cameo in every single season, I insist. Um, we need to think about that. Because, of course, like, we can show the backstory of Tom Bombadil through cameos over the course of multiple seasons. Mm-hmm. Right.
2: Although, isn't it around the same time of the like? Don't whites have to be around? By at that point.
1: Nah, the whites can come no? in later. Yeah. Okay. No, the whites come in later, but uh, but he's.
2: It does sound something like something primordial, like would happen before the elves arrived.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think, because basically, here's my question. Because the other thing, the, the, there, are, there are a couple things that it seems to me we could see Tom doing in his cameo, and one could be sitting by the water. Mm-hmm. Um, like, as he's described in the poem, right before Goldberry grabs him and pulls him in.
2: Oh, that would be hilarious if that's the way he exits the scene, he gets pulled under, and, it, <laughs> yes. and always just left there standing on the
1: <laughs> <laughs> Right. That would he's be awesome. Always just like, huh. That was weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like this,
2: he's just standing there in silence for like a good thirty to forty-five seconds. Yeah. It's just like, just like is he several is he beats. coming back or what?
1: <laughs> right. And then and and then they and then they walk away. Yeah. Yeah. Or I mean, we can save that. I we 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 we've got to play the long game with Tom Bombadil, right? We can just have him sitting by the river. And then he could get grabbed next season in his next cameo. Right? We don't, we don't have to. Though, again, the juxtaposition of Tom Bombadil being grabbed by Goldberry in the same yeah. episode in which Melian enthralls uh, uh, Elway. I mean, right? There's something there, though. We could do it with Baron and Luthien again in the next episode. In the next you know, you, like two seasons. From what now. you
2: could do also is have the water be be very clear and and relatively shallow, so Elway looks down into the water and there's nobody there.
1: <laughs> right,
3: right.
2: So that, like, there's no, like, oh, my God, let me go help him. He he can't, because there's right, nobody there. Right,
1: Yeah, well, Maria's arguing that we save Goldberry, and I think she's probably oh, right. I mean, sad. I want to hurry on to Goldberry, and, and, and I think we totally need to do the snatching scene. Like, Tom Bombadil has to get pulled down under the water by Goldberry at some point on screen. This must happen. But, um, but we do have a lot of time before we need... I mean... We're going to have Tom Bombadil and Goldberry happily living together in their cottage in the Old Forest in, like, what, season, you know, 20 or 15 or something like that. So um, we have a lot of cameos between now and then, so we we probably shouldn't push it. Um, If we saw him just kind of wandering around in his forest or, like, choosing to settle down last time... We can just have him being next to the water, so like that's where they see him. It's just a cameo, right? They see Tom Bombadil next to the water, and that'll set up a future episode, a future cameo in which he gets grabbed. Mm. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right, Marie. We should be patient. We need to pace ourselves with Tom Bombadil.
2: It would have been funny.
1: It would. It would be funny. And again, I'm sorely tempted by the Melian parallel. I sorely Mm -hmm. tempted. Um, but I think it gives the it would give the wrong idea anyway about Tom Bombadil because Tom Bombadil and Goldberry's relationship is not parallel to Millian and Thingles, of course. So, uh, that's true. so yeah, let's pace ourselves. All right. Okay. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop there, and that's excellent. We've covered four episodes, which is just what I plan to do. Since we're well, obviously going to spend three episodes going through the outlines, that puts us a third of the way through and right on schedule.
0: We got through. Half, slightly more than half.
1: No, 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 no! I'm gonna. I think we just revised history. Uh, very. Didn't didn't you see how smoothly I revised history just then? You totally blew it. I was gonna be like that was the <laughs> yeah, plan I, all along. Obviously. No, I
0: caught that. I just. I was just attempting not to let you. Well, get away. and I and know, technically
2: yeah. we have touched on the thirteenth episode. True. So.
1: Exactly, we've
2: been we've been talking about the whole season, so so seeing as
1: we uh seeing as we're we we reviewed at least four and a third, we're precisely a third of the way through. So, um, but this is really yeah. good. I hope that uh, the other people have been really enjoying this. It's one of the things that I, uh, I mean, of course, the closeness and discussing episode by episode as we go through is always great. But I dislike the fact of losing touch at the end. I'm I'm really enjoying. The opportunity to kind of do a survey and kind of rethink these things now that we're kind of seeing the big picture and holding the whole season in our minds. This yeah. seems like a very, very natural, and, uh, and I'm really enjoying this kind of a recap, and, but not just recap, sort of rediscovery and, and rethinking through now in the context of all the rest of it. It seems like a really necessary part of the process. So I'm, uh, Although- I'm sorry we didn't do this in season one, and I, I think, I think this, is, this is great. So I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to, to carry on with this.
2: I I do have to say that I I do have a word of warning that, uh, the episode 13 session took about six hours or more (laughs) to get it all worked out. And so if, if there's like, I mean, if there's more than a little change, I may have a mutiny on my hands. So just throwing that out
1: there. (laughs) All right. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I'm, I'm, I'm keen to talk about episode 13, so we'll see. But, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Cool. So we, we'll, we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll see where we get. So next time we'll start with episode five. We'll do five, six and seven. And we'll definitely plan, you know, so we'll, we'll shoot to go through eight or nine, you know, mm-hmm. to end after eight or nine for next time. And then we'll we'll try to do let's shoot for nine so that we can have only four episodes for uh, for the last yes. for the third session so that we don't spill over past three. Uh, but anyway, yeah, that'll be including cool.
2: what became the two hour finale.
1: Exactly, including what became the two-hour finale, precisely. Okay, cool, excellent, very good. So that's what we will plan for next. That'll be it. That'll be in two weeks. And so, ca- so nominations again. Casting call, Marie. We're closing nominations on Monday of this coming week. No, next week. So a week from Monday, ten days from today, right? Is that no? No, next week. No, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Next week we're having another session because we're, we're getting back to our original schedule. Today is the rescheduled from when I was sick. So we're meeting next week. Casting closes this Monday, three days from today. Okay, All right. excellent. I'm so glad that I am now clear on this point. So we're going to meet next week. Next week we're going to talk about uh, the next several episodes. And then this coming Monday, three days from now, the, uh, the nominations will close for casting and uh, we will begin the voting and discussion and debate process on the discussion boards. Again, you guys can vote and then we will go through that when we finish uh, talking about the outlines and uh, announce the official winners and cast list. Um, Somebody should make up like a fake IMDB page for a film film project. That should happen. I can't help but think. Um, But anyway, we are
2: already on the TV tropes page. Just saying.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: I, I I can't I cannot confirm or deny who may have had a hand in that, but um, <laughs> it just sort of happened. Yeah. Also, also I, I miss I interestingly came across somebody's fanfic while I was up there. I'm not gonna mention who.
3: Really? Oh, but okay.
2: somebody that somebody that we know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> cool. Cool. All right. Excellent. So uh, so I look forward to this. So that's that's the path ahead. I look forward to seeing you guys next week and carrying on with the outlines. This was a lot of fun. Uh, and I will say to everyone uh, listening, uh, as always, thanks for listening and Godspeed.